Hello and welcome to this episode of our podcast. Now, this is an interview with Brad Mills, who we love. We love also his show called uh, Magic Internet Money Podcast. Keegan and I both listen to all of the guests that he has on. Highly recommend checking it out. Now, Brad is a fantastic guy and he does a lot for furthering the education of Bitcoin. And in this episode, we learned all of, well, not all, but some of the events, some of the major events that led to the conviction that he has for Bitcoin. There's stories in there about how he learned to navigate financial institutions and what he learned about the economy, learned about how, um, how we treat money and I guess the myth of the belief in in money so this was it was so amazing for us to be present with him in his trailer recording this podcast and hearing his stories and listening to what he's been through to get to where he is and keegan and i had such an amazing time brad if you're listening to this thank you for hosting us we love spending time with you and everyone who's about to listen to this episode you're in for a joyride so let's start the episode. The thoughts and opinions expressed by Keegan Francis, Margakshi Palwi, and the guests on the GoFull Crypto podcast are solely their own and are not intended as financial advice. The content discussed is for informational purposes only. All right. So, Brad. So excited to do this podcast with you in person. In person. In and person. actually having spent the past couple of days with you, it's, yeah, it's been fun. fantastic hanging out in Gabarus in Nova Scotia, here yes. Breton. Yeah. So, so one of the things that we noticed from the last episode that we did is a couple of our friends who listened to our podcast reached out to us and said, oh my gosh, there this was the so much about did. financial literacy that they got to learn from you. And you, you know, you knew a lot about taxes and the way of, um, what was the other thing? Oh yeah. Uh, pensions and how to, how money impacts people when they get older. And I think we had a couple of conversations there. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing that's, it's like a risk that most people don't think about because it's something that's like later on in life. It's like a will. Most people don't think about doing a will until they're older. Yeah. When you're young, you're just thinking about making money and surviving and living and all that. You don't think about what's going to happen after I die. Yeah, but even when you're younger, I mean, I haven't thought of my will, but that's also because I'm not sure what I'm going to leave to whom if I do die. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have kids yet. Well, I'll take whatever you got. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> all right. I want yeah. your violin. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. That, I, mm, you, you don't even play. Uh, still I'll be sell nice it. to have. <laughs> no, I'll sell it. <laughs> <laughs> nice for it. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, that, let's say that. Yeah, that was awesome that you guys came down and visited. Yeah. We uh we we stayed in my new house that we bought in Gabarus. My wife and I bought a house in Gabarus last year. It's always been a dream of mine to have a you know second home in Cape Breton. I would love to live here by the ocean. There's nothing like the ocean, especially the East Coast. Oh, yeah. Such Eventually, a, like, though. It's like a calm, easygoing way of life. A lot of artistic people here, musicians, stuff like that. And and we had a Bitcoin meetup, too, that you hosted. Yeah, you guys rolled in, like, right from Halifax <laughs> with the lemon cookies. <laughs> yeah. 
on my birthday. Repping the Bitcoin, the Bitcoin swag, the Bitcoin mask. That was a good, nice touch. Yeah. So the Sydney Bitcoin meetup is about twice the size of the Halifax Bitcoin meetup, even though it's about tenth the population. So I think that's a that's a congratulations to you for having such a big influence in Sydney. I don't know, or maybe Bitcoin is just big in Sydney because. I think it's probably more that like. I just reached out to a bunch of my friends and were like, hey, come hang out with me at the coffee shop. I'm paying free coffee and pizza. That's quite the incentive, actually. And people came out. Yeah. <laughs> so well, let's see how it naturally develops. <laughs> you did end up um, giving the the Dr. Luke's, you did end up paying them in Bitcoin. And yes. you, start, you introduced them to Bitcoin yes. because of it. Yeah. Last year I did a coffee. So last year I bought this house when I came down for a visit. I bought this place on the ocean. And we were thought we were gonna move into it, and we were we were thinking like, okay, I'm gonna move into this place. My dream, like, kind of to have a second home here, so I don't have to kick my grandmother out of her bed when she when we visit. And you know, then we bought this trailer that we're recording this podcast in <laughs> as like a temporary measure to be able to be with my grandparents when we visit. But then we wanted to have a house too, so we could come in the winter sometimes and stuff. Bought that place, did a pot, did a Bitcoin meetup at Doctor Luke's last year. Which is like a great, great, respectable coffee shop in <laughs> Sydney, Nova Scotia. Good coffee, too. Yeah. And uh, afterwards, the owners were interested in accepting Bitcoin or saving in Bitcoin. And uh, they accepted a little bit of Bitcoin last time for, for the, the service. Oh, nice. Because they close at like six o'clock. Right. And I asked them, hey, would you mind keeping the place open a couple hours? I'll pay for everybody's coffee. And only about seven or eight people came out. So I felt a little bad. It was like, you know, they stayed two hours extra. I paid them, what, like $8 or $12 or something. It would have been. So I gave them like a tip in, in Bitcoin. And then so they kind of saw that appreciate over the last year. We've been renovating that place in Gabarus over the last year. Came back again for another visit. Had you guys come over. Uh, it was great. Had another Bitcoin meetup. Yeah, the, the Bitcoin spirit is kind of like just starting in Sydney. There's like the guy, Stephen Manley, that was there who was kind of like, I, this time I was just like, I wanted to let him talk yeah. because I talk a lot about Bitcoin, but I love hearing other like Bitcoiners, like real Bitcoiners, not just people who are like, yeah, I'm into crypto. You want to buy some shit coins? Like that kind of thing. Like, oh, yeah, Bitcoin's great. Here's an ICO you should get into, like that sort of thing. <laughs> Stephen Manley is like somebody around here that's like the same type of caliber of like knowledge about Bitcoin that like all of us are. So it was awesome to see him come out because like there's not that many people that are like publicly advocating and evangelizing Bitcoin in the East Coast of Canada. He was giving away sats on the blue wallet. Actually. Yeah, he was like yeah. all about the lightning Someone network. Someone send me an it's invoice great. for 500 sats and I'll pay it right away. We need more like Bitcoin, public Bitcoin evangelist personalities in Nova Scotia, I think. So it's awesome to see you guys doing that. Great to see him come out and share his knowledge. And again, yeah, the coffee shop uh, accepted Bitcoin for year two. Yeah, well, about the coffee. So we there's this there's this truck, this fire truck that sells coffee out in Halifax, and um, one of the owners works at ShakePay, so they had this ShakePay sticker. Really? Yeah. On on the we accepted payment here, and there's Visa, and then debit, and then ShakePay. Did you say it's a fire truck? It's a, it's fire. It's truck. a really old fire truck. It's so- called Frankie's Fire Truck, and they renovated it to be a coffee shop. All right. Yeah. And we we went there and King's like, ShakePay, you accept payment in Bitcoin? And they were like, yeah, yeah, we do. ShakePay, uh, sorry, Bitcoin and Ethereum, whatever you can send from ShakePay. So we did that. We, you know, made an Instagram story and tweeted about it. And someone asked me saying that, okay, how do they charge for coffee in Bitcoin with 
um, you know, considering the volatility of the price in Bitcoin? How does that work? So did the people at Dr. Luke's also ask you that question? No, they didn't really have that concern because they were just accepting this as a one-off thing, right? right? It was like a one-off payment for keeping the store open late. And I told them I'd pay for everybody's drinks. So they tallied it up and I gave them a little tip and paid it in Bitcoin. Yeah. But they were asking questions like most merchants do about like, how does this work with my books? Like, yeah, how do I accept Bitcoin and deal with it? Because that is a problem that startups need to solve to be able to make it easy for business owners and merchants to accept Bitcoin and then also deal with the capital gains and the reporting of the taxes and all that stuff. Yeah. That's kind of why we promote a particular uh, strategy with respect to Bitcoin. Like, I don't necessarily think that any business is at the point where they can take all of their income in Bitcoin. And therefore, you don't really even need to figure out how to convert the Bitcoin into Canadian dollars and then you know, trigger a capital gains tax. What we promote is just holding your Bitcoin and using it as a saving strategy or a treasury strategy for your business, kind of like Tahini's restaurant, right? Mm. And that way you don't really even need to figure out the whole accounting side of things other than reporting the amount of uh, income that you received at the time that you received it. That's one way to do it, but that doesn't necessarily introduce people to transacting in bitcoin in the first place and i'm sure that there are some people that will say well right now isn't the time to be paying each other in bitcoin but then el salvador is doing it well what happens in canada i I think because we have to pay the difference in capital gains when there is a conversion it just makes it super complicated to report yeah and that turns a lot of people off into using bitcoin for their business yeah yeah, that's why I think now the best thing to that I always advocate for just like you said, just uh, t- treat Bitcoin like a savings account. Yeah. You just want some Bitcoin. And most of the time, if I'm dealing with somebody that's uh, like a service business or something like that, I will say, listen, you should accept Bitcoin for whatever is like your profit in this transaction. Right. If you've got a staff to pay for installing the fence or whatever the thing is that the person's doing. If you have hard costs, like you got to pay for the wood and pay for the staff, then anything above that that you would just make off the transaction, you should put that in Bitcoin. And people tend to like that. Yeah, but then so we recorded another podcast with someone. One question that we asked them is what would make you adopt Bitcoin to the level that we have? And their answer was very simple and kind of striking to me because I didn't even think about it. They said, if if I got paid in it, then I would shift all of my money into Bitcoin because then I wouldn't need to keep fiat anymore. So mm. it's not like they didn't believe in Bitcoin and didn't know about how fiat is decreasing in purchasing power by the day. It was, well, what am I going to do? I mean, it's, it's For anyone who's not whose business is not revolving around Bitcoin, it's very hard for them to really adopt it and live their day-to-day lives as if they are, you know, in the Bitcoin world. So paying, getting paid in Bitcoin for someone like that is kind of an on-ramp into leaving fiat behind. Yeah, we're we're still so early and it's like Facebook in 2009 or something, you know, you were an oddity if you were actually using Facebook for your business. If you were actually, you know, had a Facebook profile where you had a wall and your customers were writing you and you were like using that for your business, you were an oddity because that was early adoption phase of Facebook where maybe one or 2% of the people had a Facebook account and it was just kind of like people using it for whatever. There was developers making money. There was people that were building businesses on there, but like tech businesses. 
So average people like doing their business, their regular business on a, using Facebook, like as a technology comparable to Bitcoin, like as a network effect, it doesn't make a lot of sense for people to think like, okay, well, I got to get in accepting Bitcoin now. And that's going to somehow help my business because there's only like one or probably 2% of the people in Canada probably that, that have Bitcoin or even have a wallet that they can transact with on their on their mobile phone. And then a smaller subset that even want to part with their Bitcoin at a merchant. Yeah. yeah. So the best thing is, yeah, business strategy of holding Bitcoin as a treasury reserve asset or just like saving in Bitcoin, taking your profits of your business and just putting it in Bitcoin as a long-term investment. And it's it's tough because like it takes a long time for people to really get the idea that Bitcoin is not necessarily like a new form of payment. It's a new money. It's a it's a thing that you should like save in to protect yourself from value, you know, devaluation of the currency and economic collapse and, and just also as a hedge to like have an asymmetric upside to the future of this future of money technology. But, do, you, do you believe that we're trending towards Bitcoin being the global reserve currency? I mean, it seems like we're de- yeah, we're trending that direction, but I don't think it's like going to happen anytime soon. I think it's potentially going to happen. So one question that I've been asked multiple times is, okay, let's just assume that Bitcoin is a, a reserve currency and everything is denominated in Bitcoin. How would borrowing against Bitcoin work? Because... Right now, credit is something that exists in the fiat world. And then there's also the, the deficit myth or uh, governments being able to borrow from their future selves and never have to feel like they have to pay it back for whatever reason. So if we were in a Bitcoin world, that the entire, the way that we use money to progress in technology and industry would have to change, wouldn't it? Not really. Like, it could just... So... I did. I did an episode um, with um, Jeff Booth. No, Doctor Vieira. Remember that okay. episode of my podcast? I no, listened to that he's, one. He's like a monetary historian. Yeah. Oh. He, he wrote a tome, on, like a thousand-page tome on the history of money in the United States, like constitutional what does tome money. Mean? Like a, a giant encyclopedia sized yeah. book. It's like the, the encyclopedia. He has encyclopedic knowledge about the history of money and debt, and. He would say, yeah, I believe anyways, the people like him anyways that have studied this stuff, they would say that like previous periods of history, we've had debt as well. It's not like this is new. It's not like because there's no backing to the dollar and there's tons of spending, tons of printing, that it it means this is like 100% unprecedented. It's just we are in uncharted territories now with the with the fact that like, the majority of the the wealth is just from printed money, whereas in previous periods of history, they they were kind of on a gold standard. There was some sort of limit to what the government could do. They they didn't have the like political capital to be able to just print trillions of dollars or back then millions or billions or whatever to do these different programs because there was more conservative views about what money is back hundred years ago. In your 50 view, years ago. what does being on a gold standard do to keep the government in check like how does it do that it provide it, like it provides a constraint to the money printing powers of politicians and central banks to be able to like so when there's a a, um, a constraint say the gold standard where the dollar is redeemable for something else 
that puts pressure on the government to not print too much of it, because if they do, that's exactly why they went off the gold standard in 1971, because France sent a battleship over to New York to be able to pick up their gold. They were going to redeem a bunch of dollars. They wanted to redeem dollars because the U.S. was printing too much money. So did, did France ever get that that gold? I think France got their gold. Okay. I think France got their gold, and then it was like a couple more countries started to line up to get their gold too, and oh, it was and like a run on the panic? central bank. Uh, you know, that's the whole thing about the run on the bank. If everybody tries to pull out like five percent of the money they have in their bank account at once, not even all of it, like just like five percent. If everybody just went and said, "Give me five percent of my money." The entire financial system would collapse because they don't have the money to back it anymore. Right. Well, that's re related to the the reserve requirement, right? But now yeah. in 2020, they dropped that to zero, which effectively yeah. means that any one of the big banks can can create money out of thin air. Yeah, but they don't have enough. Yeah, that's true. They like physical cash, though. Right. They don't have enough physical cash anymore. Well, we we wouldn't need that anyway. But though. if people, that's what I'm saying. If people went to the bank and said, "I want five percent of my bank account, like in cash." If everybody tried to do that, they would just lock up because they don't have enough physical cash anymore because most of the money is digital now. That's one of the entries in a database. The tricky things that I'm trying to wrap my head around now is like, is a bank run even possible, even yeah, with the zero percent reserve requirement and like 95 percent of all money being digital anyway? Well, yeah, that's a good thing, like a line of thinking. It, it is possible to have a bank run in terms of like physical cash. There is another possibility. I mean, if every, not everyone, but if a majority decided that, okay, I want 5% of my wealth put into Bitcoin, mm -hmm. uh, and they went to transfer that 5% out of their bank account to um, to whatever exchange, Kraken. yeah, that whatever. would that would also cause a potential bank run, wouldn't it? Well, that's where Keegan's saying, like, is it even possible anymore? But in that scenario, I don't think that would cause a bank run because they can just, it's just numbers. control P. And just print up as much money as they need. But hang on, though. Point. Like, banks don't have the ability to print money. The central bank does. The central bank does, yeah. So the central bank would bail, bail out the banks. The banks. Because the banks are, like, since 2008, now they're too big to fail. Yeah. So if they, if they let banks fail, it will cause a cascade. It will cause a loss of confidence. It's because we're too over-leveraged. Yes. And because everything is digital... Dollars mostly are digital now. Um, I don't think that I, I don't think that there would be a threat to the real like the banking system where people want to buy Bitcoin. I think the threat to the banking system would be where people want to take their cash out of the bank account because they don't trust the banks anymore. And that's why you have like uh, Kashari from the Federal Reserve last year going on TV being like, "Don't take your money out of the bank account. <laughs> we have enough money." We have lot, we we will print as much money as possible. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to take your money to the bank account. Like the the Federal Reserve people are going out there, like begging people, basically, like just to have confidence. Don't take your money out because they know that they can like bazooka trillions of dollars at the banks to meet any kind of digital transfers. Right. Because that's just Control P, like um, entries in a database, and that's why they're giving away hundreds of billions of dollars to the banks through the repo markets that they just give it to them. And through the CARES Act, they, they printed trillions of dollars to give to banks. So the banks digitally can, they get, they're set. They can get whatever they need from the central banks. But when people start to actually withdraw, request to withdraw the dollars, like physical bills, 
that's when the run on the bank can happen because it exposes the fact that they don't have the money backing what's allegedly in the accounts. Like they don't actually have the physical bills to back up the digital money. And that's when people will start to put two and two together and be like, oh, wait a second, why am I not allowed to take the money out of the bank account? And they'll look deeper into it. And I think if people looked deeper into it, they, there would be a revolution. Like if people understood how crazy the banking system was, they wouldn't care about politics or any like anything like that. They would be like Bitcoiners. <laughs> They'd be all about Bitcoin. Yeah, or have tried to purchase assets, but depending on where these assets are, they would probably be out of the reach of many, many individuals, many generations of individuals. Yeah, a lot of young people can't afford homes. Housing, yeah. But here, it's it's good in Nova Scotia, in Sydney, Nova Scotia. <laughs> it's awesome. Like, I bought that house for $109,000. And it's a good house. Ocean. It is a good it's a house. beautiful house. Well, we put in like twice, not twice that, but we put in more than that. Like we put in like 140000 or something in renovations in that place. Yeah. So it, it's really nice. Yeah. What, what do you, well, let me ask you guys, what did you think of my wife's decorating skills oh, and, and interior design skills? Oh, they were, she's on point. She's right good, eh? She's yep. very good. Yeah. yeah I love the... <laughs> This is, wow. I hope you show this clip to, to Liz. Uh, I love the black um, decor. Not black decor, but the black, what is it? The, the handles oh, and then the yeah. accents and the bathroom, the black stuff. I really, really like how she that complemented everything. She did a really good job. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. So the house is really nice. <laughs> and then you guys came and stayed. Thank you. That was nice. It was good to have friends we had come. a jam session. Bitcoiners. Yeah, the jam session was awesome. My dad was super impressed. <laughs> Glad uh, to know it. He, he said to me, I don't know if you heard him, he, I went into the kitchen and he's like, you know, and she said, uh, I got a, I got a violin and uh, I'd like to jam with the, um, I've, I've had many experiences where people say they can play the violin and then it turns into a nightmare. And then she said she can read the music. And I said, oh, this might be going somewhere. <laughs> and then I had a great time. We're going to have them back. <laughs> he, he, he went into it thinking, oh, great. this thing, this be, These people think they can play music. Let's see. No, I was thinking he was going to have to carry us through it as well. But now it, once we got our nerves oh, you guys from underneath awesome. of us. Yeah, yeah that's good. Yeah. That, that's great. Well, to if hear. Bitcoin goes to zero, you guys got a, a oh. second option. Yeah, got to switch careers. I'm going to take your lead on their band name and, and hit the road. Um, I have a question that pertains to purpose because, you know, we have this podcast and we are trying to spread education to as many people as possible. But I remember... We have different podcasts. We Yes, we do have different podcasts. But I remember I used to do Me these... and Keegan have the podcast, <laughs> the, uh, the T's and Keegan's. I used to have What's these... your podcast? You guys have one too? Yeah, we're GoPro Crypto. <laughs> oh, you guys have a podcast. And your magic internet money. Our magic internet money. So you and Ruga need one now too. Oh, yeah, the, the, the Nuke at Murugas. No, I like oh. the, the headstand kids. The headstander. Yeah. Yeah. So I used to do these stories on Instagram where I talked a lot about whatever people asked me. I just, you know, made sure that everybody had the answer to it. And I got impersonated. My can got impersonated a couple of times. And they started messaging my friends saying, hey, have you heard of Bitcoin? Obviously, under the guise that it was me. Yeah. So I got really annoyed by it. Uh, but what I'm getting to is I remember people coming to me and asking me questions and me giving them answers. Um, and then depending on how the market was performing, I got screenshots of this, like their portfolio with like minus 10% or minus 20% and them asking me, you know, what is happening? 
And I didn't know how to answer that question besides, well, that's just market volatility. And every time that I would answer anybody's questions with respect to Bitcoin, I would say, if you're getting into it, you need to make sure that you're in it for the long run. Because if you expect short-term gains, it really depends on timing and you got to be prepared. Um, And like there at that point, I sort of started feeling like, oh my goodness, I, I feel a sort of responsibility for getting these people into Bitcoin and them feeling like they're not getting what mm-hmm. they thought they were going to get because of, I guess, expectations that were not really matched in the very, very beginning. So with respect to the purpose of spreading education on Bitcoin, we have the podcast, we're telling people about it. Um, but what do you, like, how do you reconcile with someone coming to you and saying, hey, Brad, you told me to get into this. And now look, I've lost this much money. Um, I can't remember if that's happened to me. I can't remember. I'm trying to think if one thing I think I remember you saying at some point, and this has happened to me as well, is uh, you'll have a friend and they'll text you and they'll say, "Hey, I've been like listening to your podcast and I finally decided to take the plunge, and so I bought a thousand dollars worth of Dogecoin." Yeah, yeah. That happens a lot. That happens to me too. Right, which is... I kind of have the opposite something. Like, this bull market, I kind of had the opposite. I have, like, the two experiences I've... Three main things that happen to me are people come to me years later and say, oh my god, I wish I I listened to you. Right. And then I always give them the same advice. You know, it's going to keep doing this. Like, they're not stopping printing money. The same fundamental reasons why Bitcoin was exciting me five years ago is still... Why I'm so excited about it now. So if not more. <laughs> it's still like gonna be a great potential investment for you, but also like learn about the system and how it's 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 failing you. So that happens a lot where people come back to me and they'll say, Oh, I wish I listened to you a while ago. And then I also have people who um who come back to me in bull markets and they're like, Oh yeah, you told me not to buy Dogecoin and now Dogecoin's up through the roof. Oh yeah, that's you know, true. so I'm like, oh man, like because I always give the people the advice that if you wouldn't become a like a, a, a penny stock trader, then don't bother with altcoins because you're most likely going to lose your money. So people look at the price of these coins and they're like, oh, it's 50 cents. Bitcoin's thousands of dollars. I got to get a you know, unit bias, right? I got to get some of these cheap ones. And they're just thinking about it with a gambling mentality. But most likely they would have got wrecked and they would have lost their money. They probably would have sold it low and... But they look at the price and they say, oh, I wish I bought some shit coins or something like that. It's, it's not just about buying it low and selling it high either. It's that you have to have the conviction and the peace, of, uh, not the peace of mind, but the presence of mind to sell it at the right time. Because, uh, I mean, I've but bought some... sell it back into what, though? It really depends on what people's perception of money is. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, well, most of them are just like most of the people that come back. And I've only had that happen a few times where people will be like, I wish I bought that coin you told me not to buy. <laughs> and that is like a short term sort of thinking thing where they're, yeah. they're just trying to make some money. Yeah, it's they're not looking deeply into money itself. They're not they don't understand the value of Bitcoin and why it's better money. They just want to like make some bu- quick bucks in this thing, just the same as they would with pot stocks or meme stocks or something like that or flipping houses or whatever. They're just trying to make dollars. But whole point of what i talk about and what i tell people is like look at the dollars the dollars are the problem the money system is the problem you have to protect yourself by using bitcoin eventually you're not going to even want dollars so why try to get more of it now the way that our system is currently designed though people don't have the time and the mental capacity to think about the the value of money on a deeper level so you you know people just want to make money 
right? Yeah. That's a very common narrative that I've heard too. I just want to make a quick buck off of this. Like, which cryptocurrency can I get into if I want to make this much for like this sort of expense? But we talked about, we touched on this earlier. There's a housing crisis in multiple cities right now, especially for students, because they can't afford housing. And it's kind of like a rat race for a lot of new graduates or even students because they have to keep earning money in order to keep studying or in order to just live a normal life. So how is anyone going to, not anyone, but these people especially going to have the time to learn about the money that they're trying to earn and you know that not being the best place to save their money, even if they have it. And, and then two, even when someone does have some income that they can put or save in Bitcoin, that's money that, that that's like investment know-how that people just have, don't have the time to learn if they don't learn in school or if it wasn't passed down when they were growing up in their household. So the way that I think a majority of people who are just struggling to make ends meet, it's so hard for them to know the value of money and then go ahead and pursue turning it into something more valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why I really like telling people like go into the Bitcoin clubhouse rooms and just lurk there and listen and listen to like Bitcoiners, like philosophical Bitcoiners. I know it's it's hard for a young person, especially like I put myself back in my own mindset back 10 years ago when I first got into Bitcoin. And I try to think like, would I if if it was now, would I be into Bitcoin or would I go down the shitcoin rabbit hole? And would I be into like Ethereum and like SafeMoon and all this nonsense and Dogecoin because Elon Musk is talking about it. And like, I remember back when I the men, the mindset I had back 10 years ago was pissed off about the system. The bailouts had just happened. Occupy Wall Street was happening. And I was I was I was upset. Like I, I figured I started researching into like, what should I do with my little bit of money I had in the bank account? Because I don't like the idea of banks getting bailed out with taxpayers having to foot the bill. That didn't seem fair when they were the ones that caused the problem in the first place, these bankers. So how, why should they be rescued by the taxpayers? And how is that not going to like make the value of the dollar that I have in my bank account go down? So, I mean, I didn't have a lot of money back then. I was an entrepreneur. I had some money cash flowing coming in, but I didn't have any freaking clue about stock trading or investing or anything like that. I was an entrepreneur. I was just hustling. I was just trying to make money with my business. And I was like not interested in stocks because it seemed way overvalued back then 10 years ago. It still is, but it's obviously like the effect of printing trillions of dollars because the banks are too, have to be too big to fail pumps the stock market because it's all tied to the pension system like we talked about last time. But that mentality that I had, I was like skeptical of stock market investing. I thought the real estate market was still too like hot. It was felt bubbly still. 10 years ago. 10 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Like because <laughs> it had <laughs> it hadn't crashed in 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 Canada. We didn't have the 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 routing that the US real estate market had because Canadian banks actually weren't as risky as as US banks. The Canadian banks never had a, a like a predatory mortgage fiasco like they did in the states where they would let you get a mortgage if you had no down payment. Like in the states there was a period of time where they were just like basically giving everybody mortgages without down payments or anything. Yeah. Don't not even doing credit checks. In Canada, we had like 5% down payment or something. I think it was the lowest it went and you had to have like a certain loan to value ratio. So they were they were kind of like protecting us from a bubble forming, 
But regardless, there was capital outflow from China and other countries where they were trying to get their money into Canadian real estate. And that was keeping the price of real estate high in Toronto and Vancouver and the cities even 10 years ago. Yeah. And the real estate prices never really dropped in Canada. So at the time, I was like, I'm not going to put my money in real estate. Like, if it crashes, I'll put some money into real estate. But I had just built my house. So it was like a $270,000 house at the time. And I was like, this is insane. The price of this house right now, like, this, it should be like 180000 That's the way my mindset was working. Because it was only, a f- like, five years earlier, it was probably like 200 to build that house. But then... You know, that's the effect of money printing. It just drives the price of everything up. But then I thought like, okay, real estate's too expensive. We didn't have the crash like the U.S. had. Stocks are way too overvalued. Gold is a good investment. I was looking into gold and reading books about value and why gold is better money and stuff like that. But I just was thinking like this, this is the system is a scam. And I, I, I like ended up um, gravitating towards Bitcoin because it felt two things. It felt like exciting, like it was a new technology, like I was on Facebook in the early days, like I was saying before, no no businesses are, were on Facebook in like 2009-10, but the early adopters were, and Bitcoin in 2011 was like early adopting of this new monetary technology, and it felt like digital gold. And that seemed to be just like a no-brainer. It was like a fair, decentralized system that none of these bankers and none of these governments, none of these politicians could could be involved with. They couldn't change it. Like they could get some if they want, but they couldn't change it. They couldn't print more of it. So, so that that was like super exciting to me. But it was also the idea that I could turn on my my computer and mine Bitcoin, and like I could just like buy video cards and put them in my basement and like mint this magic internet money in my basement. I'm like, this is so cool. It's like, it, it, it's kind of like what the shitcoin stuff is right now for, for new people. Like there was an aspect of Bitcoin in 2011 that was like FOMO, exciting new technology combined with Austrian economics and like sound money principles and libertarianism and things like that. So it was a mix of two things. And back then it was only Bitcoin. Like there was only Bitcoin was the Bitcoin was the option. So my younger self that was still like not educated about money, but distrustful of the system and realized there was something better, like having a, a gold backing or like sound money policies gravitated towards Bitcoin. But now I think like, I always try to think like, would I be in Bitcoin now if I was just coming to it. And I try, that's when I talk to people about Bitcoin now. I try to put myself in that beginner's mindset of like, where are you? Are, well, like, is this, is this a boring thing for you? Are you excited by digital ape NFTs? Or like, is that the new Bitcoin? Like people have that mindset when they come to it without the deep sort of like knowledge about why Bitcoin matters. So it's tough to like, it's, it's, it's tough to to get that message across that you were talking about. But the young people of today, like they need to, they need to know this stuff because it is going to affect them in the next 10 years. It's something's going to have to happen. Yeah. And I don't think digital NFTs or like smart contract chains or like any, anything else is going to really be the answer. There's sure there's some short term FOMO in there and like, like how Bitcoin mining 
attracted me. Part of me was like the FOMO sapien part of me, which was like, oh, I'm, I got to get some of this thing. It's exciting. I see that now with people getting into NFTs and stuff. They're just, they're getting sucked into it because the celebrities are talking about it. And there's all these crazy wild prices for everything. So it's like, do you focus on, do you focus on trying to give people the foundational knowledge about the big scam that the whole money system is and then show them how Bitcoin is the answer to that? Or do you just like let them go down the path of FOMO and then eventually that will lead them to Bitcoin and just try to do your part to like guide them towards Bitcoin? Them. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like why people come to you and say, oh, what am I doing? <laughs> what do I do? I lost money. They <laughs> probably don't have margin? yet gone down that that deep learning curve of why Bitcoin is valuable because it because if they really understood what Bitcoin was and what it's solving for, you know, of course they probably want like your advice because you've been in it a while. They'd probably be like, what do I do? <laughs> like, should I sell it? Should I buy more? Whatever. And obviously you give them your your advice. But I think for me, the most part, I tell people at the beginning when I talk to them about Bitcoin, I really do try to tell them all about the system and try to get them to understand that Bitcoin's super volatile. The banks and the government, they don't want Bitcoin to succeed. They're going to do everything they can to throw regulations at us and like try to stop it, but it, they can't. They're not going to be able to stop it, but it's going to be very volatile. So like, get used to seeing your Bitcoin value go up and down a lot. So just try not to look at it and lock it up if you can. <laughs> so we read a, a paper by the, the Central Bank of Canada the other day. And oh, yeah, the staff discussion paper. Discuss, yeah, and they, it's, I got the impression that they seem to think that Ethereum is more of a threat than Bitcoin is to, to them because of their smart contract functionality on, on Ethereum. And I thought that was really interesting. I don't know if they omitted Bitcoin from the paper um, as a threat uh, on purpose because they actually, that is the threat. And by mentioning it in their paper would be an admission of that. Or if they actually just don't conceive it as, conceive of it as a threat honestly they don't conceive of it as a threat yeah yeah i don't know bitcoin canada canada's been kind of odd with like we 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 were like the central bank of canada whatever what's it called the canadian yeah mint or whatever central bank of canada the central bank of canada i think the bank of canada yeah that's yeah the bank of canada yeah we do it's the it's the bank of canada but they don't call it the central bank of canada but the bank of canada was experimenting with Bitcoin stuff years ago, like probably six years ago. They were considering, I think they called it Mintcoin. Like they were, they had a little working group where they were trying to make like their own cryptocurrency, like based off of Bitcoin. So like they've known about Bitcoin. Andreas Antonopoulos went to the the uh, the Canadian Senate, whatever the hell it's called. What's the Canadian version of the Congress? Yeah, we have a Senate. Con the Senate? Oh, we, we the House of Senate. Commons. Yeah, that's right. They went to the House of Commons and, or like... Andreas did and gave a presentation to the, the MPs and stuff about, about Bitcoin. And um, Canada's also like sold all of our gold. Yeah, like, we don't have very much. Do we, we have like one one ounce left. Like one guy. <laughs> Just found, one. Yeah, they, they, they forgot to sell one in somebody's drawer. And like the, like the assets on the Canadian balance sheet is like in the gold. It's, it's just completely routed. They I want sold someone to all. fact check that, please. Someone fact check Brad. Yeah, fact check me. I'm pretty sure though they they got rid of it except for one maple leaf that Justin Trudeau found in his desk. <laughs> That's pretty much the situation with that. So with Bitcoin, like 
I always worry, wonder about with Canada too, how is all this craziness going to affect Canada specifically? Because we kind of seem to go against trends a little bit. Like we're a very socialist country. We're the first to legalize marijuana other than Uruguay. Yeah. Gay marriage, marijuana, like we lead in all these progressive areas, but we're also the first to sell all of our gold. And for, you know, compared to the US, our healthcare system is much better for the average person. There seems to be like a bigger focus on a social safety net here for welfare and healthcare and stuff like that. But like then at the same time, there's less of a focus on like freedom and sovereignty and things like that, individual rights than the United States. So more people become wealthier in the United States because of there's more of like a capitalist sort of like culture there of, I don't know, especially in states like Texas, where it's like, it's all about capitalism and individual rights and libertarian values and things like that, where here it seems a lot more collectivist and the things that the government's doing now, it kind of seems like as a, as a, as a person that is into Bitcoin and sound money, it seems kind of nuts, like how much money we're printing in Canada compared to even how much per capita they're printing in the United States. We're printing more money per person here. And we don't like, we're actually preventing the exploitation of our resources. Like the, the Canadian government is printing money to have oil producers clean up their wells and shut down their oil wells instead of letting capitalism go and like letting people exploit their resources in Canada. So I don't know how this is going to work out. It's a big experiment. And like, I, I don't know, it seems like it's kind of working in, in one way. Cause like the quality of life doesn't seem so bad, even though, even though it's, for young people, it's a real struggle for them to make ends meet. For the in general, the general population, it, it kind of feels like it's kind of working a little bit. But for how long, though? Because yeah. the price of natural resources is also rising because of the inflated yeah, because uh, of money the printing. supply. Yeah, so even if, let's just say that there is a housing crisis right now because of the, the you know inflation, but the price of food is also going up. Mm -hmm. Price of importing food is going up. The, the going up. The price of producing food and transporting it is going up, and the price of gas is going up. So prices are still going up, even even though in the short term it feels like, oh, this this money printing is working. Let's distribute uh, some amount for everyone so that they can survive for a little bit. But that's only short term. And mm -hmm. honestly, like, what kind of we've the, the way that we've built the system, I feel is. This this is the only way that we could have gone forward because it feels like the restrictions that you were talking about earlier, that's something that we've taken into our own hands and decided that they shouldn't exist at all. So with respect to the reserve requirements and, you know, keeping a check on ourselves and having some sort of accountability on the actions that we take in order to um, be helpful to, you know, the country that you are trying to govern, there's there's... It's taken, we're taking for granted the fact that things will be the way that you want them to be. So even though on the one hand, the money printing seems like it's working and helping on the other, it's really not. Because if you were to think of it in terms of, okay, where is this balance? Like, is there a balance? But there isn't anymore. I feel like I talked, I said that in a very meta way, but. Well, the balance <laughs> is like, it is possible for there to be a balance. And I think that's what 
you you know you're reading that book by Stephanie Kelton. What's it called? The, the deficit, deficit myth. myth. Yeah. I think there is a potential for a balance to happen that could all, like kick the can down the road continually for a decade Forever. or a century um, until I don't know whatever. Maybe the idea is to get us to a post-scarcity world or something where we have free energy and we can grow our meat and like whatever it is that, like in the future. But we're not the, there yet. Well, and we're it not seems there like we're yet. already over the tipping point. No, I don't think so. I think I think like because because of the like they printed eight trillion, ten trillion, whatever it was last year. Right. And it didn't crash the system. It's showing up in inflation and higher prices, but that's we can live with that. It's in Canada we're doing CERB or we did CERB, basically just give everybody that needs it two thousand dollars a month. Like, okay, let's see how that experiment works out. Well, it's working out in higher prices. And higher prices, like Jeff Booth has the great line on this. It, it's like the central banks are working against technology because the central banks are causing higher prices and they're targeting higher prices and 1% to 2% inflation. They're targeting inflation. But technology and innovation, like human ingenuity, is actually causing deflation. And which it should be naturally. It should be that if you only live off of $1,000 a month, if that's what you make, well, you should be able to survive on that because technology should be driving the cost of the things you consume down. And that should be like, there shouldn't be a need to constantly raise minimum wage and constantly get promotions. You should be able to just work, store your wealth and live and enjoy the benefits of deflation through technology. But when you have a central bank in there manipulating things and trying to pump the stock market and try to keep the pension system going and promising everybody like free rides everywhere, they got to print money or tax people to pay for that. And the taxes are high enough already so that they can't, they know they can't raise the taxes because then they'll have revolution. People will vote them out. You know, they'll lose their position. So they don't want to do that. So they can't raise the taxes. They can't lower, they can't raise interest rates. That's another way to do it is to raise interest rates, but they can't do that because everybody's like sitting on basically like paycheck to paycheck. Most of the middle and lower class are sitting paycheck to paycheck. They can't afford their living expenses if the interest rates go up. If their credit card rates go up another 10% or if their mortgage rates goes up 3 or 4%, most people are just bankrupt. So they can't raise taxes. They can't raise interest rates. So the only thing they can do that's left is print money, and that causes the inflation effect. I want to, I want you to talk about why you think that deficit spending can go on forever and how, you know, like if it were not past the tipping point, how printing money forever and increasing prices forever can work out. Yeah, and- that's a good, that's a good line to go down. Um, it's, I'm going to open the window though. One second. <laughs> it's getting hot in here. It is. <laughs> oh, that's good. You can even just keep that closed. I'm going to open up the other one, too. So We'll, we'll pause this in the video or you can keep talking. <laughs> what I was thinking of when you were talking about the whole, oh, we can just continue increasing the supply of what we use as money is, I remember when I, I grew up in India and I think I was maybe six years old when um, we there was a water scarcity in the city that I lived in. It hadn't rained that much that summer. And I remember my sister and I, we would have to share a bucket of water to take a bath, uh, take a bath in the sense like 
I'm converting it from Marathi to English, but essentially use this tub and this small little mug in order to clean ourselves. And we had one bucket of water to do that for about five days. And then we'd have to go get water from somewhere else and then bring it back uh, where we live. So what that taught us is when there is scarcity of a resource, you naturally use less and you save. But right now, if I just I feel like that scarcity principle, which at least was natural to our household and a lot of households where you you save, you use less in times of in, in dire consequences, or not dire consequences, but when when times are dire, mm-hmm. you use less. But right now, times are dire and we're not using less. We're consuming we're more. We're <laughs> consuming more and this the government the, like the whole printing of money in Serb and giving money to people who are unemployed perhaps because they didn't save enough in the, to begin with to stimulate the economy again we're being given money to spend when to that's just so unnatural for me to think of because that's that goes against the way that at least I lived when there was a scarcity in natural resources like we couldn't invent water or just have Print unlimited water, water <laughs> when there was water scarcity water. where I lived so I want you to talk about this and how this can actually work in the monetary sense. Yeah, so like that's a great story about about conserving and scarcity and like it's something that was ingrained in you because of your situation. But it's not like there was a, actually a shortage of water in the world, right? Like you could have there could have like technology could have solved that problem, but it wasn't available. That's true. So I guess the mindset of the people, and I'm not in this mindset where I think that they should keep printing money and all that stuff. I don't think that's what should happen. I think that they can, I think they can do it and it could work without causing a global depression like next year or something like that. Because it's like, I don't know, they're, they're looking at this from the top down, I think, and they're just looking at what can we do to prevent like they're not seeing the wealth inequality that they're causing in say like the smaller communities or the the inner cities or whatever like the neighborhoods where wealth inequality is affecting people the most where the rising of prices by 5 or 10% actually causes someone to go hungry in the west like in Canada that's happening like there's definitely people that are suffering because of this money printing they fall between the cracks. They don't qualify for CERB. They they go hungry. Like that's because prices are too high, and prices are too high because of the consumerist mentality that we all have now. Like, and consumerism is rampant not because of capitalism, but because the risk equation is all screwed up. Like central banks are manipulating with the market. They're they're taking away the risk from the biggest corporations and banks. So by by keeping interest rates low. So if the interest rates were allowed to fluctuate at a real priced, you know, market priced um, rate, you'd have a lot more risk aversion and a lot more cons- conservation by companies and even banks. So what about people though? People too, like that. I think that we're trained from the top down. Our behavior is influenced by our government and pop culture and your system that you're born into. So we're born into a system where banks prey on you as soon as you're old enough to get credit cards. 
<laughs> like you're encouraged to take on debt, student loan debt. You're encouraged to get a credit card. When you go to college, they got the booths recruiting you to get these high interest credit cards. You also need a credit score if you want to buy a house or get a mortgage yeah. in order to buy a house. So that's a necessary evil is you have to have a credit card in order to get a good credit score or get take debt on. Yeah, it's like I didn't realize that credit scores were a scam either until like 25. <laughs> like, wait a second. If I don't need their money, I don't need their credit score. And I always Correct. used to think that credit scores and creditors were like government employees or something. And like, because I was like, no, they're independent agencies. Yeah, they're, you can tell a creditor to shove it and like they can't do anything. It's not like you're going to go to jail because you didn't pay your visa bill. You're going to get a ding on your credit score and then you won't be able to likely, you know, get another visa that easily or you'll have a higher interest rate. But if you don't even use their money, then what's the point of having the, the credit score? So this this is controversial but because some people like or, or want to be, you know, have a good credit score in case you need to like leverage leverage the the banking system to get a debt to take debt on but i don't know the cape retner in me is like i'm just i'm anti-authoritarian and i'm anti like scams basically like i think someone's scamming me i'm 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 not into it so i'm like how do how can i scam them because they're <laughs> scamming all of us so that's the way that like my mind is working when i learned about the credit scores i was like this is such a scam like they're the money doesn't exist. The money that they like, the money that they loan you from the credit card doesn't exist. But fiat doesn't exist either. Yeah, and that <laughs> was even worse when I realized like the money that they like. So you you get a credit card. They the the signature that you put on the application prints the money into existence. Right. You use the credit card, the like say to buy furniture. The the company gets paid. The furniture company gets the money from the bank. That came from your signature. And the bank took no risk. The bank doesn't owe that money to anybody. So if you don't pay off your credit card, nobody's harmed. <laughs> the bank didn't even have the money as collateral to give to the furniture store. The furniture store got the money. They're not suffering. I felt like I'm just going to not pay my freaking debt. Like these guys are scamming me. I shouldn't be paid. I shouldn't be charged 20% interest on money that my signature willed into existence. So when I was younger and I was like getting into learning about money, I'm like, this is such a scam. I've been scammed this whole time, paying all this money on car loans and, and credit cards and all this stuff. Meanwhile, the banks have no risk because if they if they get in trouble, the government's just going to bail them out and print them out of the out of the out of the problem. So why do I have to suffer paying twenty percent interest? I'm just going to not pay my credit card bill because they can't do anything to me. <laughs> they'll call me all the time. They'll hound me. I'll just tell them not to call me. <laughs> so I did that. Do you want to put a disclaimer on that piece of a story? I there? did that for a while. You know, I did that for a while, and I think it might actually be a good idea for <laughs> for some people. If you already have bad credit, right? Like I did. Like I was poor, and I was, you know, didn't have credit, and I was not in the mindset where I was going to be getting a house anytime soon or anything like that. I was like, well, okay, I'm being scammed my whole life by creditors and banks and stuff. So. I realized that like when you go into collections, you your debt is sold to a creditor agency. So like a credit card that I had got sold into collections. And what does that for pennies mean? on the dollar? So if you had a thousand dollar credit card, say, just for easy numbers, and you default on the credit card, it's a ding on your credit score. Right. But it doesn't actually mean anything really. The car the like Visa's not gonna like take you to court and 
try to get you to pay up over a thousand bucks or take your assets or take your asset most of the credit cards though are unsecured so they can't take your assets you know the certain credit system stuff is tied to your assets like your mortgage and stuff like that but your student loan is like a government thing too so you can't do that you can't do anything about that that's shackled on to you no matter what even through bankruptcy i'm pretty sure yeah true but like a private debt from private banks they can so if you don't pay it it's a ding on your credit score so that's first of all what people are afraid of most the credit score getting hurt so they, you get a ding on your credit score but then they realize that it's just not worth it for them to try to collect small amounts like that from people because they're going to spend more on employees and call center reps and stuff to call you and try to collect from you. So they just write it off and they sell it to a collections agency for pennies on the dollar. So this collections agency might buy your debt profile for like 10 bucks for a $1,000 debt, right? And then they call you up and they start saying, we're with Visa Collections, you have to pay this. And they try to pressure you into collecting the debt. Because they only bought it for 10 bucks, and if they get $800 out of you, that's a huge profit. Because Visa's written it off already, sold it off to this collections agency, now the debt's transferred. But these collections agencies are just also making the calculation that they don't want to waste too much resources and time on collecting small debts either, so they're willing to negotiate. So you can actually negotiate with the, with the creditors once you're in collections to pay to get the debt written off for much cheaper for like like more than less than half so if you owe a thousand bucks and their creditors are trying to collect you you can negotiate two hundred dollars to pay it off and then you part of the negotiation say remove this from my credit score so (laughs) if you're patient enough you could get a five thousand dollar credit card buy bitcoin with it max it out don't pay it off go into collections, negotiate it down to $1,000, and boom, there you go. You just got $5,000 of the Bitcoin for 1000 bucks. You hurt your credit score. But, I mean, I wouldn't do this now anymore, but this is what I did when I was, like, younger because I was just pissed off. I'm like, I don't want to operate in this credit score thing anymore. I don't, I don't want to be relying on banks for loans and, and like part of that system so how can i scam them because they scam me but then wait hang on so does the collections this before i learned about bitcoin <laughs> but that did the collect so does the collections agency have to pay the difference so if you negotiated no. the thousand dollar debt for no because it's their debt now they just bought the rights to collect from you but so what about the difference though what about the eight hundred dollars that you visa wrote it off like the company wrote it off the bank wrote it off so the so the money that you willed into existence by simply filling out the application form to get a visa yeah. card no longer has to be paid or settled. No, because by it anyone. never it never existed in the first place. Back in the day they used to have to put up what? collateral for loans. That's why that's why sound money systems make more sense because you'll take less risk if there's act like banks will take less risk and so will borrowers. If if in order for them to lo- to like give you a thousand dollar credit card, if they had to put up a thousand dollars in collateral that backs the thousand dollars that's out in in the world, they wouldn't be giving people credit cards that don't deserve the credit or that are likely to default on it. So in order to, but part of the Keynesian economic system is consumerism, like promoting rampant consumerism and always replacing everything. They want you to have money to spend on the latest and greatest 
version of the thing you already have that's perfectly fine. <laughs> so they'll encourage you to take debt and spend and be a good consumer. And then, so they, the like regulations allow for banks to loan you money that doesn't exist through fractional reserve banking, spend this money into the economy, and it's, and it's created basically when you spend it. And so, then if it and then if you don't pay off the debt, it doesn't matter because the money never existed in the first place, and they don't have any liability to pay it to anybody. Like that, if you have a hundred thousand dollar credit card, you spend a hundred thousand dollars on a house or whatever. Let's just you know, you cannot pay that bill, and it's not going to hurt the bank. The bank is just going to click X. But that's because of the private institutions. Like, if it was government debt, then that's essentially on your record forever. Like you were yeah. saying about, that, about yeah. the student loan, but private agencies... And some places, it's different laws, different places. So, like, this might not apply to everywhere, but I'm pretty sure this is how it works in most places. So you're saying that we're all individual men money printers if we have a visa? As, when you're born onto this earth and <laughs> you have, like, a social insurance number, you are, like, money for a bank. You are, like, profit meat for a bank just waiting to be harvested. You just wow. have to turn a certain age. And once you're a certain age, you're good to go harvest. And then they, they can like milk you every season for until you're dead. And then they'll pass your debt on to your descendants so that they make sure they get paid. Unless you just say, no, thanks. I'm not paying that. <laughs> and then and then there's nothing they can do about it. You may get taken to court if it's a large amount of money. They may try to collect from you. But if most people are like living paycheck to paycheck, normal people stressed out about creditors, because I had a creditor call me one, this was when I was younger, and they, their name of their company was Canada Collections Agency. I thought it was like a government, like a government place. And I was, That's kind of smart marketing. <laughs> yeah, it's so scammy. Like the Canada Collections Agency, we're calling because you owe $800, you must pay, like this sort of stupid thing. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to go to jail because of this $800 thing. Like I can't afford to pay my bills, but I guess I better pay this creditor off. And when I realized that they actually bought my debt from the original, how did you learn that? Yeah, I was just gonna say. Uh, it was it was um, I think I watched this movie. Somebody had recommended it to me called America: Freedom to Fascism. America: Freedom to Fascism. Freedom from freedom to from fascism. Okay. Yeah, it was like two thousand five or something like that or six. And it's sort of talked about how income tax got started and how. Back but in like 1946, right? Something like that. Some, yeah, it was like it was a World effort. War One or World War Two. Income tax was like a temporary measure introduced to help pay for the war, and they were going to get rid of the income tax when the war was finished. Yeah, temporary measures never go away, though. And it was like this movie was presenting the case about how the Constitution never had income tax in it, and how actually income tax is unconstitutional, and. Not only is it unconstitutional, but it's like theft, and and it's also not even used to pay for the services that most people say, it, like building roads and paying for healthcare and things like that. Well, that's the big question that it, it beckons in today's day, day and age with MMT, uh, modern monetary theory, is like, why, why do I pay taxes if they can just print money? Why do you need 50% of my income in Canada? Yeah. If, if you can just print it. So the, so the, the, this movie was like presenting this case, which is a really kind of like out there case about income tax itself is, is unconstitutional and it's wrong morally and it's theft and it's, and it's not even 
used for what people think it's used for. It's it's used to service the national debt. And back in like the 70s, it was. But now it's not. Now it's more like what you said. But if there's actually an answer for that too. Like it's it's for inflation control. So they, they need your taxes so that they can essentially burn that money to keep the total money supply down. Otherwise, they just they print money, they inject it into the economy. If they don't have money coming back in, then inflation would get out of control very quickly. And the, the tax the tax base is, is to essentially keep it all under control. And I think it's more like that's one philosophy on how like why you could like justify having income tax through for, for I like don't think it's a great control. justification. <laughs> but I think it's more so just for control, just in general for control. And it's... it's um, well, it creates a demand for dollars, right? Like if you work and you get paid in dollars and you owe some of that money to the government, uh, you, if you got paid in something else, you still owe that those dollars. So at, yeah. at, at some point in time, you still have to go and satisfy the market's demand for dollars and then go pay it. Well, there's state income tax and provincial income tax here and then there's federal income tax and i think this movie was all focused about federal income tax right in america in america yeah right and like the 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 movie was like 2005 or something so this was before the 2008 collapse happened and they were making you know telling the history lesson about how every dollar of income tax was going towards servicing the national debt. Meaning the debt, the country's debt had a rate on it, like basically bonds. You have to pay bonds to the private investors that hold the, the debt of the country. And the income tax was used to pay for that. So they were kind of like making the case that why are, why are, why is the dollar not just something that the, government controls why is the dollar being serviced by income tax so why are the why are the citizens of the population paying private investors interest rates with their taxes like wouldn't it be better if we just didn't pay taxes and they didn't give interest rate to private investors See that makes more sense to me because then like then, it, then nobody's keeps, losing right you keep more of your money you have more of your money to then go stimulate the economy which is one of the reasons why we're all getting SERP checks anyway. Why couldn't we just, yeah, not have taxes? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that movie made a great argument. It was like, it was kind of, it did feel kind of scammy to me that private investors were getting paid for holding the debt of the country. Like, and then they went into the Federal Reserve and how the Federal Reserve is not part of the government. It's a private corporation that, that takes has dividends, shareholders and, makes money off of manipulating the money supply and take gets, you know, the private shareholders get dividends and all that stuff. That didn't seem right. So then they talk about the debt system and how banks use fractional reserve to create money into existence. And like, so it kind of went into that. And then I, I just went down a rabbit hole about watching all these documentaries about money is money as debt and the history of money and things like that. And just was so pissed off. And then I eventually I eventually got down like to gold. That's where it eventually led to me to like, okay, I gotta buy some gold. Well, that, that's <laughs> I where things get lead, gold. right? If you if you start asking yourself the question, "What is money?" and start questioning the structure of our financial system, you see all the the logical um, inconsistencies, and gold is the the, the previous uh, bottom of that that questioning 
uh, thing that that you do. And and now the modern, uh, quote unquote, modern way to get to the bottom is to ask, like, arrive at Bitcoin, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like, it's the evolution of gold for, for an information age, for an electronic, like a technical age. Gold isn't, isn't valuable because it's just shiny orange metal. It's valuable because of its properties that make it a good form of money. And Satoshi created an electronic version of that, which serves perfectly for the digital age. Gold still has a place, obviously. But it's not like people, gold bugs will argue, oh, gold is, has intrinsic value. What's Bitcoin backed by? And it's like, what's gold backed by? It's not backed by anything. It's just a metal. Right. It's backed by its properties of, of consensus that people think that the, that has the right properties to serve as a good money. And Bitcoin has created like a digital version of that. And, and some people argue it's a better version of gold because it's more predictable, the supply issuance. and even more scarce. So if I'm trying to give the benefit of the doubt to the system itself that, that we, we've just described the last 70, 80 years, uh, I'm not sure if Bitcoin could arise out of any other system. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, it's like an, it, Bitcoin was like a necessary antidote for the corruption that was going on right. for, for 50 years. If we didn't have the corruption, then would anyone like Satoshi be prompted to create something like Bitcoin, because Bitcoin mm-hmm. fixes a really specific problem. Yeah. But if we design the system in such a way um, that, well, that Bitcoin didn't need to be a remedy for it, then would we would we even be here? I don't know. Probably not. Like That's honestly, what I'm thinking, right? It, it's like the same reason why most people don't have Bitcoin yet, because most people in the West, like we kind of have monetary privilege. We don't have a system that's hyperinflating. We don't have uh, a system that's like telling you that you you know for the most part you're going to lose your bank account if you try to do this or that which it's pretty good for most average people that are just going about their daily normal lives in the west so compare that to nigeria where almost a lot of the young people in nigeria they're actually suffering financial oppression they have a currency that's not reliable it's hyperinflating so a lot more nigerians have bitcoin than canadians per capita because it's actually a necessity right so for that same reason i i think you're right like if we were under an austrian economy economic led central bank where they were letting their interest rates fluctuate higher based on the market and they weren't printing so much money and they were we were still backed by gold which constrains the ability for the politicians to print money to go to war and to do these big spending pro- projects which is just wasting money for the most part if we had that kind of a system, it probably would work decently well, and gold would probably be well more popular. Enough. It would work well enough. Yeah, yeah, it would probably work well enough, and Bitcoin probably wouldn't have been invented because there wouldn't have been such a strong like anti-authoritarian cypherpunk ethos in in the hacker culture to create something that solves this problem. Probably would have been like a digital gold or something like like a. A, di- a central bank digital gold coin or something, you know, like blockchain would have been used for a centralized gold thing because everybody would have probably liked gold. But it would, wouldn't <laughs> have as big of a value proposition because it, like one of the big value propositions to Bitcoin is it's a, it's a stark opposition to the way that our system works now, right? But if our system was closer to the Austrian economic setup, then the value proposition, the discrepancy between the two systems would not be near as large. Yeah, which would probably would have put less fire under Satoshi's butt to create Bitcoin. Right. 
So it would have probably been slower to come about. Perhaps. I want to talk about regulation after listening to that, because something that I've been thinking about is um, the, the price of things is regulated. And perhaps that is great for some things and not so great for others. But what do you think? What is your opinion on the fact that a central authority has the ability to regulate slash manipulate whatever way you want to look at it at the price of goods and services? And just to give a little bit of context, I was talking to someone a couple of weeks ago and they were telling me how they went to visit um, someone in Kenya and they were from Canada. And uh, they said that their, their experience at the market was so different than shopping at the grocery store here in Canada because at the market in Kenya, the price of the vegetables and fruits or whatever you wanted to buy that day it was based on the demand or the supply of um, those fruits and vegetables and also the demand at the market at that time. Kind of like how the free market works, I guess, at a trading terminal is, okay, how much do you want to pay for this or how much do you have in order to sell it to me? So, you know, obviously regulation was not something or regulated pricing was not something that was in effect at that food market in Kenya. But it is here in Canada to a certain degree. Um, and with respect to, I think, a lot of things that are regulated in price, what is your general opinion on whether or not, you know, services and goods like that should be regulated by some sort of authority? Um, well, in a system like where we have, where, where everything is manipulated, then it makes sense that you'd want to regulate prices. Because I'm thinking of like from the top-down view of the central bankers and, and economists, the Keynesians and monetarists and stuff that 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 want to control everything, it would make sense that you'd want to have pricing czars and all that stuff because you would you don't want inflation to get out of whack. But I don't know if it's necessary. Like, do you think that I never really thought about in Canada that that we have pricing? regulation like do we actually have that I, I think we can like maybe have a small antidote here anecdote not antidote anecdote um like our grocery stores for example they'll collaborate with one another and set the price of bread or they'll set the price of milk and so it's not necessarily uh, like a government imposed regulation but we, we i know that there was there in in the past during during the depression and like in the world war ii and stuff like that there was government bodies that were regulating prices of things and there was there was basically like um limits and controls on prices of different commodities and stuff to prevent price gouging or profiteering or whatever from speculators from like driving the price of things up too high so that so they're like there's a book that i like love recommending everybody that's wondering about markets to read called reminiscences of a stock operator and it's like a history lesson of like turn of the century stock boom in like the 1900s this this character um jesse livermore is like a stock boy or whatever working in a bucket house bucket shop watching people trade it's like a story of him going from that to like becoming a market maker on Wall Street, working with J.P. Morgan, like the actual like figure, J.P. Morgan and stuff like that, all through his career, and he talks about in what it was like for speculators and entrepreneurs and stuff to like live through those price fixing events where there was like pricing czars, like coffee czars, and all this stuff. And it's it's like 
when times get rough, I think that's like COVID times now. I think that pricing the the urge for politicians and and economists and stuff to like keep prices in a band is pretty is pretty strong for them to because they feel like the same way that you might feel responsible for somebody losing some money on Bitcoin if you recommended the Bitcoin that goes down fifty percent, you might feel oh shit, uh, I'm gonna give you a little free Bitcoin for a little buffer. I do that sometimes. Like they probably feel like they're responsible for the rise in prices so they'll probably want to regulate it so obviously i think the free market is the best solution and monopolies are regulated like it's that's a part of the laws like to to be able to shut and you know destroy monopolies and separate them out so that they can't um collude with or collude to prevent competition and in the capitalist system. But I wouldn't say that grocery stores colluding with each other, or whatever to, to like set the price of bread is qualifies as like price fixing regulation. I would think that would be no big deal. I think the free market would eventually price it where it belongs. Like you'd start seeing black markets for bread. <laughs> If they tried to like regulate, like that's where with currencies, you're not allowed in a lot of countries that have hyperinflating currencies, it's illegal to have US dollars, but you'll see like black market currency shops all over the place that, that, you know, there's a, there's a pegged price to, I think the Lebanese dollar to the US dollar. That's like the official one that's reported. But then if you actually go into the market, you'll get the real price. Like the, you, you can actually get the real price right. in the black market. So, I don't know. I feel like I feel like it would have to be pretty bad for us to see that here. The one thing that that kind of made me a little bit frustrated and and kind of like pissed off last year when COVID um, first hit and like the toilet paper was flying off the shelves <laughs> and like yeah. all that stuff, they created artificial scarcity with milk and certain uh, products like there was millions of liters of milk just dumped from the oh, dairy that's farmers. still ongoing that that's an ongoing thing because they have quotas yeah. they can't produce more than a certain amount but what they did was like there was a real strong demand for milk there lots of things people wanted to stock up because they were afraid of what was going to happen with covid so people wanted to stock up so the stores put limits on the customer you can only buy two cartons of milk right. customer so the dairy farmers and stuff kind of like ramped up supply. Meanwhile, the stores put all these limitations on what you could sell or buy. I mean, so then they had all this extra supply and it ended up backing up and they had to kill a bunch of animals and like dump a bunch of milk and like just waste so much food. That's the kind of system that I think is, is not good. And and to me, it kind of all comes back to the, to the, like the fiat mentality of Keynesian economics supply money supply increase like money printing by politicians market manipulation of central banks to keep the interest rates low it's like it's preventing equilibrium to be found right like there should be risk that gets flushed out of the system those dairy farmers should have been able to like sell that milk and if someone wanted to stock up a hoard of milk and let it go bad on their own dime then that should have happened but they're like, well, we got to control the response to people buying milk by not letting them buy milk. And then all the farmers dump their milk. Like, that's such a stupid Keynesian 
fiat manipulation thing to do the same and that's what happens with money that's the entire system like pretty much the same thing happens here in nova scotia with electricity as well actually so if you are renewable yeah if you're running a a solar farm or a wind farm you're only allowed to operate at a certain percentage of your capacity um the one one guy we were speaking with he said yeah we've got a wind farm it operates at a maximum of 60 percent capacity even though we could run our windmills at 100 percent nova scotia power won't won't buy that excess of electricity from us so that that's that reason is kind of like because as far as i understand nova scotia power has like coal plants and nuclear plants right that generate the base load of power right but shouldn't we be ramping down coal as aggressively yeah, as we can but with renewables i know this is a big problem in california and probably the reason why they do it here they want it to to turn a like a coal power plant off mm needs to be ramped down expensive right. and inefficient so they're trying to convert to renewable but if it's a cloudy day they're not going to have as much power generated so if they're at 100 percent capacity for the renewable and then the wind dies down and they have to kick the coal plant back up or the nuclear plant back up it's so expensive to start and stop those things that they're trying to have um they're trying to have like as little interruption with the the grid the the main grid yeah. as possible and that's where bitcoin actually comes I know, in I was just and, and takes bring that, that in <laughs> yeah it's like it takes the excess capacity and uses it for something useful right and it allows constant demand of power so that it kind of solves that problem with with the uh like it would incentivize 100% renewable right because you wouldn't need the coal or the nuclear at all if you have a a use case for the energy and it's a, a sufficiently it developed grid, right? Like so, this uh, this wind farm they could run at 100% capacity, take the 40%, throw it at, at Bitcoin yeah. mining, use the proceeds from Bitcoin mining to expand the farm to the point in time where yeah, we could actually not just ramp down the coal the coal plant, but just turn it off altogether. Because the idea there is that like in the days where it's not as windy, unless you have like 10 times the amount of windmills, right? you're not going to be able to have enough energy to power what you need. Right, and that So makes they sense. have to have the nuclear plant on and the coal plant on to yep. have a baseline of power. But if it's mining Bitcoin when it's... So if it's really windy, it's you're going to have 10 times as much energy as you need going. Right. So they don't want to invest the money into all these extra windmills because they're going to have too much energy and it's going to be like starting and stopping the well, traditional mining plants. Day. <laughs> so that's a good mining day. Yeah, you're mining Bitcoin when there's extra wind energy and then when... There's less. You just turn off the Bitcoin mining side and you just let the entire renewable grid run what the base load is. And it's like there's people that are starting to do that now. There's Bitcoin companies that are that are starting to do that. I forget yeah. what they call it. It's there's a certain term they have for that. And there's certain a credit. There's like, like an energy credit market, too, that. Yeah. Carbon credits? Car- well, no, no it's, energy it's, credit it's, and carbon. Those oh, are two separate markets. Yeah, it's like that you get the government will pay you to turn off your power. <laughs> okay kind of a thing it, it's like the, it's another really weird i've heard of that no yeah it's like there's another weird um, also which government this is in texas i think okay so, so there's there's like texas has its own grid it's actually not it connected does. to the so national state, grid yeah state government too though right yeah load but, balancing is that yeah what load balancing of? is something i don't know there's a specific term for we're it, out of but, our wheelhouse now yeah <laughs> out, of, out of our out of our wheelhouse <laughs> But this kind of does come back to 
the idea of like Keynesian versus like modern, like modern monetary theory and the deficit myth and all that. Because, you know, with, with this system of debt that we all are part of, it's, it's like a very inefficient way to operate money. It's encourages consumerism, which is bad for your concept of what value is and conservation, like your story with conserving water. If you're constantly being stimulated with everything, you know, the the idea that you should have everything that you want. Always. Then you'll always have that baseline, like operating system of consume, you know, get more stuff, replace my things. Like I always got to have that hit of like buying something new. That's what debt does to you like that that's what living off of a debt money does it, it can, encourages you to constantly be upgrading and keeping up with the latest trends and technologies and all that stuff and it, it that's at the bottom that's like you know, the entire population is like fed this this pill at birth or not birth but like when you get old enough to like get out on your own i would actually say at birth because i've got yeah I, I like when i'm listening to breed love he he really enforces the idea that that um value in itself is a belief system and uh, like value subjective and from the time that you're you're born you start to learn how to value things and when you think of value you think in terms of whatever your native currency is so and if we're we're talking about death death debt from a uh, from birth then it is baked right into you from from day one uh you know from the time that you can understand money that is i suppose I find it really unnatural, like um, based on what your response was to that story about water scarcity and the fact that maybe there wasn't technology at that point in order to maybe supply more fresh water to the region that I was living in. That can still be true at that, you know, for that moment, I guess. But um, I do think that principles of scarcity should be taught um, to each household or just to us as children, because I think that just how nature operates so when when some parts of the the planet have experienced a drought or too much rain and flooding and you know whatever natural we call it natural disasters but it almost feels to me like a natural rebalancing of things and uh, that's kind of how we learn to survive with what we have and also learn to save as much as we can when we can mm -hmm. because i think the entire lifestyle changes then because your first Correct. instinct is not to get more it is actually to save what you have say what you have but also live with what you have and get the best mileage out of what you have but also with respect to getting the next cake getting the getting the latest technology i we're as human beings that that the focus of getting what's new and the latest is that's really I don't know that this goes into the whole like mental health aspect of things and spirituality, but is that really why we're on this planet to get the latest and greatest and to make more money? Or is it simply the fact that you're alive, you're living, you have a family around you, you have community, you do good um, and just live, just be, be happy, focus on that instead of, you know, finding yourself in a rat race, which sometimes you can't really help because you're just born into the rat race. One of the things I like that Brad that you do is bring up the the notion of a post scarcity world, and I like uh, pontificating on on that thread because what it, does pontification mean? I'm just thinking. I'm just trying to sound fancy. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> About a post-scarcity world, because we've got an expansionary monetary system on a finite world that's becoming smaller as our population grows, right? Like, for example, if everyone in developing nations lived like uh, the average North American, we would, we would outgrow our planet tomorrow. And so what does a post-scarcity world look like? And, and does our current financial system take us there? And I, I don't think it does. Like when I'm listening to Jeff Booth and he says that jobs going away is actually a good thing because it means that every individual has more time. And like, do you really want to be uh, like mopping the floors of that bathroom anyway? And like, let's get a robot to do that. Let's have each human uh, actually do what they want instead of do what they have to do. I don't know, though. That's going to be more and more, more and more difficult um, as time passes, too, because of the, I guess, technology and um, regulations in the first place. So, for example, years ago, if you wanted to travel and move to a different country and we call it your home, then you could like you would t build a raft or build a boat and then just go from one land to another or travel by by road. And you could move to wherever you wanted to, whenever you wanted to, because you wanted to. But as we as we stand today, we can't really do that. Like vaccine passports is a thing. You cannot come here unless you have this or based on what nationality you're born into, you already have restrictions on where you can travel and what you can call your home. So restrictions upon restrictions, it's like, I don't know how a techno like a post-scarcity world where technology is deflating the way, the, how much we pay for things. Like, what does that do to the freedom that we're possibly losing over time? Where do we gain freedom and where do we lose freedom? Well, th this conversation is like <clears throat> one that leads to universal basic income and modern monetary theory. And th this, this is like something that a lot of the MMT proponents will, will always say. And even Jeff Booth says this, and I struggle with this because I don't necessarily think that it works, that you will have more time and that you will, you, you know, like basically... Jeff's idea is that technology will make things cheap enough, and if the central bank wasn't manipulating the the currency supply, if we were on a Bitcoin standard, then you'd have the combination of a sound money that prices things, that prices risk appropriately so that you take less risk and that corporations would take less risk and they would fail if they do bad. That makes sense. And the idea that we would still have technology that would make things more efficient so that you wouldn't be mopping the floor, the robot would be doing it for you, and then you'd have more time to learn or whatever. Like, that makes more sense to me than the other side, which is like the Stephanie Kelton, like modern monetary theory side, which is automation is coming. Same thing as Jeff Booth says, automation is coming. It's going to put half the workforce out of a job. So we need modern monetary theory as a solution. They say the same thing about it's it's going to be like chaos if people are out of a job plus out of money. But if they're out of a job and they have like a basic income to sustain themselves, then that will prevent like society from falling apart because then you'll have time to do other things. But, but it we, also depends on what that money and that time is spent on, though, because... Yeah, like if it's... For me, I always wonder... About that, I kind of struggle with it because I'm like, well, what would I be doing with my extra time? Because we do live still in this consumerist world. Yeah. And then I would just be like, become a degenerate or something. Like, I'm, it's not just, just because you get free time, it doesn't mean you're going to all of a sudden start like painting Da Vinci works or <laughs> reading like the books you've always wanted to read. Like, you probably would just screw your time away and like, 
watch TV and like you probably would waste your time. <laughs> I do because a- we live in a fiat world. So I think like Jeff Booth's side of it, if we got to a world that promotes scarcity and has education around value and spirituality even or whatever, like if the world made sense from a top-down base layer of money perspective that gave people a good head on their shoulders about thinking about value then that would probably be better than the world where the base layer of money is like government handouts relying on the government um not learning about value not having a good understanding of scarcity and value and conservation and all that stuff the mmt side of things the universal basic income side of things to me it's like I want to see one or the other. I I want to see. I would be okay with the MMT world, like the 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 deficit myth world, replacing the world we currently have. Because going back to the taxes conversation, it is a scam and it it's not fair. And the people shouldn't be taxed to pay for the interest rates of private investors that hold the debt of the nation. It should the pow- the people should grab the power of the money back into their their hands and and say no we're not going to pay interest on our debt that's not we're gonna we're gonna use it to build infrastructure and pay for medical care like that makes more sense to me that no sorry wall street you're not going to get bailed out this time like we're gonna provide health care to everybody and we're gonna like do something about the homeless problem like we're gonna take all the trillions of dollars that we're printing to give the banks and corporations and we're gonna give it to the people through ubi healthcare, like all those progressive ideas that sounds really attractive to me but it's probably gonna blow up and it's probably gonna lead to like world war three or great depression 2.0 so i don't i don't know i don't want to see that either but i think it's so it's like either status quo like we have now which causes crazy wealth inequality the system that we have now is not that bad it sucks for the people at the bottom and the people that don't have the like the chutzpah to like pick themselves up and like hustle and get out of their situation which is a lot of people but we do have some of the benefits of technology we do have like much better now to live in this world than it than it was 50 years ago so a combination i, I don't think we're going to see Either of the three. I, I think going forward, it's going to be like a compromise between a straight up like modern monetary theory world and the Jeff Booth style world with because we have Bitcoin. So thank God we have Bitcoin to be that exit raft for those of us that want to like update that system and promote the other ideas of scarcity and value and things like that. Because it's not going to be one of the three. It's it's nobody can agree on anything. It's going to be a combination of of some sort. And I just hope it doesn't lead to like war because countries have to kind of do Bretton Woods 2.0, where Bretton Woods 1.0 was all the like countries got together and said, we're going to agree to use the US dollar as our reserve currency because it's they've got the most gold. So it's the most like the gold standard. And we're just going to stop fighting with each other about our currencies and stop devaluing against each other's currencies. We're going to use the US dollar. And that kind of led some prosperity. But it created massive wealth inequality. So, you know, it just sucks because, like, especially in Cape Breton, coming back here and talking to people about it, it's like everybody has this anti capitalist bent. They think capitalism is the problem. And what's well, a capitalism with a twist is the problem, like cro- yeah. cronyism, like the, the ability to spend your money on bribing politicians, the ability to, uh, to inherit your, uh, 
like your position as the CEO of a company and then run that company to the ground and get bailed out, for example. Yeah, the bailouts is the biggest thing. Right. Like you should be able to inherit your company and all that stuff and you should be able to do whatever you want. But you, you should, should be able to run it into the ground. Yeah, you should. And, and you should and go into the ground yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and then deal with the consequences. That's right. But if you get big enough that like it would actually cause a 10% loss in the stock market, they're just going to bail you out. So that caught, so then that that is what happened. We we're in this world now where banks and corporations are too big to fail because it's all tied to the pension system like we talked about before where if the stock market starts to go down, it's going to cause the pension system to go bankrupt and that's going to put all these boomers and like silent generation people in a really bad situation and gen x's and stuff that are going to start retiring in the next 10-15 years they're not going to like that because they're going to have no pension. So it's like, what can you do as, as a politician? You have to keep printing money. You have to find a way out of it. That's not going to cause great depression 2.0, but I don't know. I've been reading a bunch. I've been all of this year. I've been trying to read books about previous cycles of history. I read like the Dow of capital and, uh, when money dies, and I'm just finishing this one now in the Florida real estate boom called uh, bu- The Bubble in the Sun. And I think I read another one, too, on, on this stuff. But it's, it's, it's not a good position to be in to have to try to dig us out of this crazy shit situation we're in. And if you look back at previous history, it doesn't seem like it's going to be like smooth sailing. I think they could do it. I think they could slowly print us away and like continue like inflation will go up prices of everything will keep rising but it won't end in like great depression and millions of homeless people and jobless people like we saw in the great depression originally where people were just like well that's already the destitute. case though like we're already seeing homelessness at, a, you, yeah. at an all time right and it's it's climbing it's not going down yeah it, wealth inequality is really a problem um but I wonder now, is it because we have technology now? We have more advancements in technology and medicine. and To be able to deal with that. To be able to like like still figure that out. I, I, I don't know. I, I do. It does suck that like the world is consumerist. And everybody's trying to like get more of that government money. Even Elon Musk. Like it's like, let's get more of that central bank money to build the technology that will get us to post-scarcity. You know, like that's probably worth it. It's probably worth it to, to print the trillions of dollars to invent the technology that gets us to post scarcity. I don't know if they're going to succeed. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not hopeful that they're going to get us to post scarcity. I don't think it's going to happen. But I hope that these people that are carrying the modern monetary theory bandwagon, like the, the banner, and, and like, because they have a lot of political power. Like, it's undeniable that these people have political power. We're go- they're going to see it through. They're going to try. And, yeah. and it's like, what's the alternative aside from Bitcoin and sound money? It's Great Depression 2.0 and World War Three. <laughs> so, like, they're going to try. They're going to try their best to, to right, keep no printing. Yeah. But I don't, I, the, the only thing about modern monetary theory and the deficit myth and all that stuff, it's like either they're really stupid. or they're just because they have to they they either don't understand the system at all 
Which is possible. Like, they either really are dumb and naive about the stock market, and they don't really understand how deep the banks have a grasp and control of the money system and the dollar itself and the economy. They either don't understand that, or they're just pandering. Like, they're playing a game theory board out, right? Where they're just pandering to the 50% of the people that don't understand. Because there's... The majority of the people don't understand. 80-90% of the people in the world don't understand the way that banks, they think capitalism is the problem. It's the banks that are the problem. It's the corporations that suck from the teeth of the bank, that get the taxpayer-funded trillions of dollars to bail them out. That's the problem. So either these Stephanie Kelton, um, Bernie Sanders, like all these AOC, all these like progressive Democrat types of people that push this agenda of modern monetary theory, universal basic income, and anti-government or anti-corporation, anti-capitalism, tax the rich, like all that stuff. They either don't understand that if they had their way and they implemented all that stuff, it would put us into Great Depression 2.0 because of the way the system is rigged. It would collapse the stock market and it would be really bad. That that that's the end game for socialist money it's like bread lines again <laughs> that that's the way i look at it either they don't understand that or they do understand it they know they're never actually going to get that far with it so they're just pushing that game theories to like to its limit yeah to, to like, whatever that limit to, might be to mobilize the base of people that will vote for them and then once they get in power they're not actually going to go that far with it they're just going to like try to fix it they're going to try to like print less money for banks and more money for people and like do something in the middle which wouldn't collapse the stock market it would cause a recession but it wouldn't cause a depression i could live with that people get more medicine and stuff and like banks get less bailouts that would be a good right we could actually medium. absorb a, a 10 20 50% drop in the stock market as long as people's basic needs are met and you have that that period of time where the government essentially, I don't know, I can't imagine them ever doing this, but like briefing the public, it's like, okay, we're going to do this, but we're also going to take care of you during this period of time. Like, Well, what you'd have there the, is like a lot of the big money and corporations would leave the United States. They would just right, either shut true, down or they would leave. They would go to more friendly. That's why I'm saying you'd need to have like Bretton Woods 2.0, where all of the countries get together and say, we're all going to do this at once. We're going to switch to modern monetary theory. We, all, we know all the debts don't matter anymore. We're all going to give our citizens universal basic income, and there's going to be high inflation. Prices are going to go up, but we're not going to like fight over it. That's what Bretton Woods was originally, and it was like for the monetary thing during the war. But something's going to bad's going to happen if all the countries start to try to do this on their own. Then there will be like battles between each other because then it's like fighting for resources. It's like why well, it's not it's not fair that all the citizens of the United States get a universal basic income plus the benefit of having a reserve currency. So then you'd have China and Russia and probably a bunch of countries that are kind of like in the middle be like, well, we're not going to deal with U.S. dollars anymore because they're using the our we're funding their citizens from living this best life while we're over here suffering. So they all have to either do it together or there's going to be a fight over it. So Bretton Woods 2.0 would cause like the can to be able to kick down the road maybe another 50 years maybe it would be like what wtf happened in 2021 like that would be the new site you know like 50 years later the failed experiment of the first like 
Rele- release money. of the back of yeah. gold from the money, letting them print whatever they wanted. Look, it led to all these different wars that are totally unwinnable, and the wealth gap increased a whole bunch. And turns out, like, it had some benefits to technology and society, but a lot of negative benefits. So let's do the second part of it where we just don't count debt anymore. <laughs> we, just, <laughs> we just don't count debt anymore. And instead, we take that money and we give it to our people and try to, like, you know, get us to a post-scarcity world in 50 years and renewable energy and free energy. And if, you know, that, that, that would be like probably the best case scenario I could see happening in our system of consumerism and Keynesianism. Otherwise, like Bitcoin and Jeff Booth sort of style stuff, like that's the real answer. I feel like going back to the roots of value and stop being consumerists and all that stuff and trying to conserve more and that's the 500 year answer whereas the the scenario that you just posited before was like okay well let's try this now the previous thing didn't work let's try this new thing see how long it lasts but like i think we've like historically it's it's a pretty good pretty good case where if we were in a like a goldback system or a digital goldback system that that would be a system that modern day society could live on for 500 years or more yeah, I'd love that one. I don't think it's going to happen no. <laughs> anytime soon. Right. But, I mean, doesn't need to happen for Bitcoin to succeed as, True. you know, a life raft for the, those of us that want to have us more sound money and learn about scarcity and value and and try to live those values ourselves. Like, we have Bitcoin, so it's an option. Self-sovereignty. You got to take care of yourself because yeah. you can rely on somebody else having to take care of you forever no matter what so self-sovereignty with money and then i guess if you have time self-sovereignty with food because being in a position where you can't buy food or don't have access to food would be really bad for you and your family so i guess the you know money and food yeah and like water (laughs) is good yeah and uh, I mean, I guess going back to your story about the water and, and the, the, the like the comparison to like people in today's day and age, like in in Canada, wherever. Money is like like water is a technology. Cleaning water, you know, delivering the clean water to the world. Money is a technology like delivering sound money to the world and and. It's so much easier to deliver sound money to the world than it is to deliver clean water to the world. And there are like places in the world where lots of people are suffering from kind of that same thing where they don't have a sound money and they have to use some stupid like dirty money that the, the their, their corrupt government is providing for them. But thankfully we have the internet and cheap cell phones and Bitcoin works on a cell phone and cheap internet. And Starlink is coming. So even if you need good internet, you're going to have Starlink all across the world. Like imagine being able to beam down clean water to everybody on the planet. <laughs> like that that's something that's like, that's a technological feat that a Bitcoin standard could provide. Well, in a, in a way, Starlink kind of does that uh, because of uh, the information that you need to, to learn how to clean your own water, for yeah. example. Like if you're in a place where the internet's not accessible... You don't have education. Oh, at, yeah. Right? And like, if you have the education, you can actually kind of pull yourself out of whatever circumstances on a long enough timeline and with, with enough drive. But like, that's the reason, too, that I think capitalism has such a bad rap that 
getting the entire planet clean water is something that capitalism can do. Governments True. are not going to solve that problem. Like only beaming, really if beaming water down, is scarce though. Elon Musk solved the problem of the internet going to the entire world. The government wouldn't have been able to do that. They would have wasted a trillion dollars trying to get the internet to everybody in the world and using reusable rockets and stuff like that. Like that's something that only capitalism can do. I, I think, anyways. What is your definition of capitalism? Well, just free markets, free markets that aren't interfered by central bankers, like trying to manipulate what you can and can't do. An actual free market. So, if you were to define yourself as a capitalist, then if you were to replace the word "cap," I am a capitalist, but I am and sentence. How would you fill that or swap that word out for its definition? Uh, I like Breedlove's freedom maximalist term. I'm a freedom maximalist. Yeah, I think you should be, a, like, libertarian is another great one. Like, uh, you should be able to do whatever you want without harming anybody else. That's and, so funny that that's something that we need to actually strive for or, or say it in a sentence. Like, you should yeah. have the ability to do whatever well, that, you that's want. That's the fiat world. That's the fiat mentality. It's the consumerist mentality, the socialist mentality, like, the modern monetary, the, the end point for modern monetary theory without a sound money is giving up your rights to get comforts and relying on the government to provide for you, which will teach a whole generation of people to rely on somebody else for solving their needs, which is going to put us even in a more vulnerable position as a species or as a generation, because it's that whole cycle of like repeating patterns again, uh, the fourth turning, you know, like weak, weak, weak men create, what is it? Weak men create hard times. Hard, hard times. times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Right. So under modern monetary theory, a whole generation of people will be like, they'll just be provided for by the government. And that will create weak people. Yeah. They it, won't be relying on themselves. True. Yeah. And then they will, like, ideally it will create educated people and spiritual people that's stuff. the idealist but that's perspective like, you know like we were talking about the bonfire the other night with my friend who who i haven't seen in a few years and uh he's like asking me about bitcoin and one of his things was like yeah but i don't like the idea that like these people are just getting rich without doing anything they just bought bitcoin and they're just sitting on it and now they're gonna get rich it's the same as the old system and you know he i called him about my you know the idea that like it's not the same it's Bitcoin doesn't solve for greed or wealth fairness or right. or wealth inequality. It trends in a good direction compared to fiat money. Fiat money is always trending in a in a worse direction for wealth inequality. Bitcoin is at least being distributed to the millions of people that are coming in to like use Bitcoin as a savings vehicle. So wealth inequality is getting better in Bitcoin. But that's not even what the point of it is. The point of it is just to have a base layer of money, a base layer of value that whether you're a CEO of a Fortune 500 company or a farmer in India that like has is under a water scarcity or whatever it is, you have the same access to the exact same rules of money as as anybody else. And that's that's what Bitcoin's biggest value proposition is to have a set, a sound base of base layer of money operating system that you can save in and transact in and think in that is fair and no one's going to be able to print more, no one's going to be able to change the rules on you. That's what's valuable. It and yeah, like people are getting rich off of it, and that might you might think that's unfair, but with the dollar, like they're gonna print a trillion dollars and go bomb and kill a hundred thousand people overseas to keep their petrodollar regime going. 
what's better? Like <laughs> burning some energy and like wasting a bit of energy if you think it's a waste and having some people get wealthy or having the system of money that's continually being devalued to use to oppress you and control you control you and and actually kill other people with with like stealth bombers and stuff that you know that are paid for by the central bank like they actually just print money build that stuff and go bomb other countries to protect the oil that's backing the dollar in this book the deficit myth uh stephanie kelton actually articulates how the u.s military does its spending and it spends the money before uh like in the year and then asks for the money from the central bank after it's been spent so they get a budget let's just say it's 800 billion dollars and then if they spend a trillion dollars that's cool that's fine actually they'll just ask the bank for it at the end of the year and the 200 billion dollar makeup is is granted to them yeah without questions because it's in the name of like, oh, we got to protect our country. Yeah. National defense, of course. And they always like lose hundreds of billions of dollars too. Like in the process just, somewhere. They just can't reconcile it. It's like gone <laughs> in these black book projects or whatever that they just, you know, the hundred billion, 200 billion here and there. If we're adding fuel to the fire, what was that episode we listened to on Joe Rogan, Keegan? It was by that journalist. And she was talking about how we think that if we were to shut off all the corporations and industries that are producing tons of uh, carbon emissions every single day um, and reduce that. And every, if everyone became energy conscious, it would not impact or the way, where we're trending because the biggest consumer of electricity or the biggest consumer and emitter of uh, greenhouse gases is the U.S. military. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that single entity. Yeah. 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 I yeah. forget what her name is. Uh, I think it starts with A, but... Aubrey... Something? Amber, oh, I don't oh. remember. No, she spends time in Palestine and and uh, oh, yeah, she's in Israel. Oh, is that was... the the New York Times? Uh, no, she former went former New York Times, maybe. And then she went to Russia and she worked for a uh, Russian newspaper. And they I'll tried to, to send I'll her. I'll have to find that one. Sounds interesting. Oh, it's very good. It was oh. it was a very good one. Very eye opening. If you wanted, if you take her for her word or for her research mm-hmm. and everything that she's come coming. It's hard with. not to take someone who has their boots on the ground. At, yeah, at she's talking value. from experience too. She Ish. goes there. Yeah. yeah, puts her own life at risk. Like her life is at risk every day she goes there. Yeah. So yeah, my buddy that we we're talking to, he his idea was, I'd rather see like Bitcoin, but where you just give everybody on the planet a hundred dollars of it, and then you know you'd have it fairly distributed. And I said, well, yeah, that that would work for like five seconds, and then it would take <laughs> about two years before. All the rich people have all that money because if you just gave people money with no education about what to do with it and in a consumerist world where you're just instinctively trained to spend and pleasure, like have pleasures and, and, you know, have that, that instant gratification, then you're going to have the same inequality, maybe not as bad, but it's going to trend towards inequality again, because there's always going to be somebody that wants a bigger stick so Bitcoin is not meant to solve that, but having modern monetary theory and universal basic income as a base layer for an entire generation of people, that's going to create weakness, in my opinion. I think it's going to create people that aren't self-sufficient and that aren't like going to be able to like make their own. Not only that, but I think there's a really big systemic issue at the government level. As soon as universal basic income comes into effect, the next politician that is most likely to get elected is the one that offers to increase the amount of universal basic income. Mm-hmm. Who, who wouldn't vote for the person that is going to say that they're going to give you more money? 
and there's two effects from that that creates more weakness. It uh, perpetuates the the uh, the money printing because you have to print more money to give more money, um, and that has to go up anyway because inflation is going up, and so people need more money. Uh, yeah, I mean that that's just a recipe for disaster in my mind. Like universal basic income does not solve for people's uh, like desire to get something for nothing. And if you can get more for nothing, then I'm going to go vote for that <laughs> yeah. person. That's the game theory from then on is just offer more stuff. Yeah. Like, that's funny. My grandfather, there's an election going on in Nova Scotia right now. Well, it finished. There was. Yeah. But conservatives won. When I first got here, my grandfather was telling, talking to one of my other family members about it. And he's like, you got to vote for the liberal guy. He's going to increase our check to a thousand bucks. Like, <laughs> and my grandmother was like, we got to vote for the conservative guy. He's going to put money into health care. My grandfather was like, yeah, but the liberal's going to give us a thousand bucks. So the conservative guy won. So my poppy's probably upset now because he's like, thought he was getting a thousand bucks. He was already shopping for his guitar. Yeah. Now he's now he's probably like, man, I wish that wish that liberal guy got in. But it's funny. Yeah, that that is really the way that things work now. It's, well, I don't see it going any other way with, with respect to the universal basic income. Well, we kind of already do have universal basic income with CERB here. Like that is the the trial run for universal basic income, and well, it's not, I'm not necessarily with the results though. I mean, it's not necessarily the worst though. It's it's not. It doesn't. It it kind of did its job to be a, life, a like a float, you know, like a life preserver in this crazy COVID time where they had shut everything down, and people's businesses were shut down and stuff. Like they did a lot of spending to keep businesses afloat and to keep people afloat. And we're starting to see the prices rise of things as a result. And we're seeing people be more compliant with losing their rights, which isn't a good result. But at the same time, we are starting, I'm starting to see more people be aware of the money printing and starting right. to realize there, there's something wrong. And people are even starting to say, like you said, like, well, why do I have to pay taxes if they can just print all this money? That's a good question. It's control. It's just a system of control. Not like in the 70s, when I think it was Nixon got elected, they did, he commissioned a report. I forget the report was called, but he had like a government employee or whatever do a, an investigation into the income tax and see what the income tax is being spent on. And he did find that all of the income tax is being spent on servicing the national debt before it was penny of it was spent on police or healthcare or roads or any of that stuff. But that was back when the interest rates were more controlled by the market forces. So there was higher interest rates. So as a percentage, there was higher payments on the debt. So a, like all the tax revenue went to pay off that debt. But now the debts are the lowest they've ever been in history. So the 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 bonds are not paying nearly as much as they were in the 70s. So you our, mean the yield? The yield of the bond. Right. The debt's the highest it's ever been in history. The debt's the highest it's ever been. The interest rate's the lowest it's right. ever been. So the bonds that people own pay less. So the income tax is actually not going to pay for the servicing the national debt anymore. Not as much of it. Mm. There's still a little bit going to pay for the national debt. But that was an argument that this movie America Freedom to Fascism had used as like one of its central core theses, you know, about learning about money. And now I'm realizing, well, actually, that's not the way it is anymore. Now they just print it. So the... Since 2008, they just started quantitative easing and just printing the money. Like they were always printing money through fractional reserve banking and printing bonds and stuff, but now they just give it to the banks. They just print it up. So it it 
kind of makes even less sense to have a federal income tax than just print it. And that way you don't have to deal with that freaking headache every year of dealing with them and like it's just a system of surveillance and control at well, this point. I'd like point. to see the average individual with more money in their pocket to do what they want. With yeah. It. Consumption taxes make a lot more sense. If you have made money and you're going to buy stuff, pay tax on it. Like consumption taxes make sense because rich people that want to enjoy their life and have that instant gratification, they don't have the value of scarcity and understanding value, then as they consume, they pay taxes on it. And then they lose the benefit of saving. <laughs> right. right? Where, whereas an income tax is a production tax because income is a result of your work. Yeah. It's just, it's a theft of your, of your earned energy. So this guy, Dominic Frisbee, he, uh, he was on Breed Love's show. He did a whole eight part series with him. And there's one striking part and it was just a simple metric. You just put societies on a scale where uh, a 0% tax on your income tax is uh, basically anarchy or like m much more closer to, to a libertarian society. And then 100% uh, tax on your on your work is slavery. And then we're somewhere in the middle. Well, where are we in Canada? If you make over $100,000 a year, you're at 50%. 50% uh, of your work is taxed. And it's like, okay, well, that's, that's really interesting. That's a very interesting way to frame what that is. It's like we're halfway between freedom and slavery here. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're more like... A, we're a social democracy. We're like a socialist, Truly. capitalist democracy. There's quite a bit of socialism in Canada. There's still the capitalist spirit is alive, and you can still pull yourself up by your bootstraps and hustle and become a success story. And, you know, it's like kind of a good mix. There's a safety net. There's a social safety net for people that are sick and people that are unemployed. And, I mean... I think the system we have here works better than the system in the United States. We pay higher taxes, but like there's less suffering it feels like. There's less like human suffering of the, of the of the people here. At the ends, right? Like less extreme. Yeah. Like less extreme. We still have suffering, but the extremes seem less uh, less of a magnitude. Yeah, it seems like they're doing an okay job of the of the control <laughs> sort of thing while still giving people freedom, but when it comes down to it, like we don't have real freedom here. We have privileges. Right. So as long as you're being compliant and like being a good taxpayer and like wearing your mask, like you're, you have the privilege of being free. But, you know, on the opposite end of that, there's China, which is like, you can't even own land in China. You know, if you have a company that's a public company, like there's a, there's a CCP employee in your company. Like every company has a CCP employee. And you can't vote, like you can't. You What's know, a CCP employee? The the Communist Party of China. Oh, like there's okay. like basically imagine if you had like a, a, an IRS agent or or a CRA <laughs> agent at your company. They would be our third employee, Murga. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to, it has to be guy. like a public company or, or like a you know a company that's bigger, you know. Yeah, yeah. But even like China, as an example, is making it work in a way, as far as a billion or so people lifted out of poverty out of extreme poverty they're doing better than they were 25 years ago yeah it, it's like th this stuff kind of feels weird to say but like it's kind of working a little bit but there's obviously like concentration camps for uyghur muslims in in china which is not working and a slave trade for north north korean uh people that yeah and they're escaped. taking over hong kong and they're and they're they're taking over probably gonna take over taiwan 
And they've, they've got a social credit vote. system that's pretty crazy, the actually. The social credit system is a, just, you can't a, just get a, a nightmare. If, you, uh, if you're in the books as a bad, as a bad social yeah, you, person. Yeah, you, you take out your neighbor's garbage, you get a plus. If you, is cross, that a thing? if you jaywalk, you get a negative, and then you can't travel anymore. Like, that, that's kind of like a simplification <laughs> of it. But it's, it's pretty Orwellian and, and pretty crazy. But So the free market kind of comes up with its own social credit system anyway. It's just yeah. not it's not tracked by a central entity. Like when you take your, your neighbor's garbage out, your neighbor says thank you, and they bring you a pie two weeks later yeah. when it's your birthday, right? And like I don't know, maybe your neighbor wouldn't make you that pie, but we kind of do that instinctively as humans. And then there's this natural tendency for uh those who are in power to to track that kind of thing now that we actually have the technology to do so. I mean That's the Black Mirror episode though. Right. Right? The like <laughs> you only do nice things so you can get a positive review. And then you stress about it, like you go home and you're like depressed over your three star rating you got from the person at the coffee shop because you were too rude or too quick or whatever. Oh no, it was because she was being too fake. Too fake. Yeah, yeah. she was, she was Not faking authentic. niceness. Three stars. Yeah, exactly. And then if you're only three stars, you can't get a good apartment, like that sort of stuff. That, yeah. That's totally, I could see that happening. But it's like th this stuff can work for a little while and maybe they can make it work for longer, but... It does seem like through history, eventually it's going to break down. There's going to be like a reckoning and it'll flush out. Like the, the risk will flush out through either war or depression or like that cycle of the fourth turning. Like the. We rebuild our systems. The, the old ones collapse yeah. and we rebuild new ones. So. I guess we'll just keep buying Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to say one thing, something that I noticed in all of our stories and Brad specifically yours, since you, um, you shared how you sort of got into Bitcoin in the first place again, is you recognize that you were being scammed and then you didn't want to have that happen to you anymore. Uh, so I guess your first thing was, okay, I'm getting scammed. I'm going to do this to them because I don't want this to be done to me. And you had that, you like mentally, you were aware that this is happening and I don't want it to happen to me anymore. Keegan, with you, you were already, always interested in money, but uh, the 2008 financial crisis also struck something, struck a chord with you in, in the sense of, oh, like, why is nobody being held accountable? And that's what sort of led you down the curiosity of understanding about money. With me, I knew that I always wanted to get into investment and know how to put my money to work. But the one thing that triggered me into getting into buying Bitcoin in the first place is actually looking at Keegan's success, which drives a lot of people to get into Bitcoin is when there's a bull run, when Bitcoin's up 20%, you must have, all of us must have noticed this is we get way more messages when Bitcoin's up 20% than on an average day, you know, not even on the day that um, uh, like when Bitcoin's fine, it's fine. When Bitcoin crashes, then it's like, oh, what what is happening to Bitcoin? When Why is this going to recover? <laughs> and then when Bitcoin's up, it's like, oh, how do I get into Bitcoin? So for at least for me, when I got into it in 2018, I bought it off of Keegan and I wanted his success, which is what led me to finally pull the trigger and put my money to something that's going to grow in the future, potentially. And uh, like our efforts combined is what led both of us to learn so much about money in the first place, like the basis of money, the principles of money. And without this, I'm not sure if I was a software developer, if I'd, if like if something would have had to happen in order for it to trigger me and say, why is this happening to me? I feel like I'm scammed. I feel triggered by 
whatever is happening to me because I didn't make it happen. Somebody else is responsible for this. Uh, and what I'm getting at is we've all had experiences where we've wanted to either get back at someone and like notice, know how to do that, which is why we've looked for other methods. And then like the second part is, oh, we wanted that sort of success. So for the people listening, they've just listened to so much knowledge from all of our experiences and all of the things that you have to say about the several economic theories. Um, like what, how, what can we say to the people to educate them, to get down the rabbit hole of not Bitcoin, but understanding the basis of money so that fundamentally and on a, like on a principle level, they can buy something, buy into this thing that we call Bitcoin with a conviction that they are doing the right thing with their financial freedom or towards get becoming more self-sovereign with their finances. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You want to go? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I, for me, it was as simple as this. Uh, like the 2008 crash happened. Lots of money was printed. I understood that printing money devalued the dollars in my pocket. And, and I, that that's felt like an assault of sorts. It felt like, oh, I'm being impacted by this thing that's happening elsewhere. That that to me was the thing that was not right. And then during 2008, like I was, I wasn't super stoked for the next four years because I was like, I have no recourse to remedy my situation at all. And Ron Paul was pretty cool with that because he was like, here, like, let's audit the Fed, let's let's buy some gold, let's let's try to fix this situation. Uh, but Bitcoin was the ultimate remedy because it is it is my way of directly um, protesting and showing dissent and dissatisfaction with the way that things are currently done. And it actually feels meaningful to do it. So for me, the like, that whole progression, dollars out of my pocket, or at least the value of the dollars in my pocket going down, assault on me, what can I do as an individual to remedy my situation? And, and Bitcoin is a direct way to do that. And that that's that's kind of how I yeah. conceptualize it. Exactly. I think uh, like same thing, like Ron Paul was a really great influence on me. And then that led me to Actually, first I was reading about like Rich Dad Poor Dad. I think it was one of the yeah, first books I Robert read about Kiyosaki. money. Yeah, Robert Kiyosaki was talking about like the different mindsets of people, whether you're an employee or an investor or I forget what the other ones were, contractors. I don't know, but it was like certain people have certain tendencies, and this is the the quadrant. Kind of like give yourself the little personality test and see where you fit, and then talking about investing in real estate versus like paying into your pension and just kind of like sitting back and hoping that you get a good pension. And like his, he had a, the poor dad and the rich dad and the poor dad was like his actual dad who wasn't really poor, but he was like, he was a laborer. He was a, he was a worker. Yeah. And his, his rich dad was like his friend's dad, I think who was, yeah. who was an entrepreneur investor. Um, so that was like kind of like an interesting intro to, to um, learning about, making money work for you instead of working for money and um that was like i guess it's if if someone's listening to this they probably already are interested already That's in true. it um so i wouldn't want to be like oh find out what you want to do and like go figure do you want to make money or not like people probably want to make money if they're investing their time into a podcast like this so it's more about just continuing to learn and understanding value and understanding why things like real estate and gold have value 
and our stores of value and why Bitcoin solves for store value and fairness of the money supply and like the system of money. So it's like, um, what other books? Reminiscences of a Stop o- Stock Operator is another one. I really think people should listen to that. It's very entertaining. The guy that reads it has like an old timey voice. He uses weird, <laughs> weird colloquialisms and phrases. And it's just fun to hear what it was like a hundred years ago as an investor in the stock market. Um, good lessons about like risk management and not becoming a bag holder and things like that, especially for people who are dabbling in shit coins. Like that book is so good to like <laughs> rem- make you remember, like if you get a win, take the win. Like when the volume is there, there's going to be another, like this is going to go away. Like if you're just like, especially people that are doing the altcoin stuff, cause most people do like most people, even Bitcoiners got a little bit of money aside to like get gamble on some shit coins, trying to make fun. more Bitcoin. So Reminiscences of a Stock Operator is a really good book for learning risk management and a way to think about like how to save and take profits back to Bitcoin. Um, but um, yeah, pissed off about like the money <laughs> supply. Like, like it's just pissed, pissed off about the fact they can keep printing money and looking into what money really is. And I was pissed the, off the that I couldn't do anything us. about it as an individual. Well, that's what like... That's why I like the the progressive ideas, like the 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 progressives, like the Democrats or whatever. There's there's the wing of the Democrats, like the left, that call themselves progressives, and they have like kind of a lot of libertarian Bitcoiner tendencies. Like they're they're just directed at capitalism instead of the corruption of the system and the central banks, and like they've got this concept. They had this concept of a of uh, a credit card strike which is like almost exactly the sort of like natural visceral response i had like i was like in 2011 with occupy wall street stuff 10 or whenever it was or was it nine it was nine or yeah, 10. 2009 2010 yeah i was like watching people talk about doing the exact same thing i had done with my credit card a few years earlier because i got so pissed off and i found out this big money this big system was a scam and i was getting ripped off being charged 20% interest on money that didn't exist and that I created with my signature. <laughs> like, how is that not a big scam? And I felt like an affront to me too. I felt it was like they're attack they're they're attacking me my whole entire life. Yeah. I'm gonna fight back by going on strike with my credit. And anyways, this year there's this whole credit card strike thing it was like hit them where it hurts, right? Like hit them in the capitalism is what they called it. But it, <laughs> okay. Like hit them in the capitalism, go on a credit card strike. So I love that uh, that energy, but it's like it's not capitalism. The credit card system is a scam. It's like they have a cheat code for the game. Printing money is the cheat code. Like I'm it's, just thinking of The Sims, where you like yeah, you just type ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. <laughs> That's literally what the credit card companies and the banks do. <laughs> they have a cheat code, so it's not fair. It's not a fair. It's not a fair game. So it's not capitalism. Hit hit them in the corporatism, like just hit, just the cronyism. Yeah, hit them in the cronyism, the the counter <laughs> counter counterfeit capitalism. But that's I love that concept. So I don't know. I I I feel like this could, could is a good segue into 
the last thing we should talk about, which is Bitcoin Sherpa. Yeah, actually, I was going to do that, too. I, I, what, do well, you I did say? it first, so <laughs> I get credit. I get the credit, social credit for that one. Well, that's because, I, well, you know, talking about Bitcoin Sherpa, because I remember when we started building it, one of the reasons that you wanted to build it was that so that people can find other people who are like-minded yeah. and and not uh, get uh, offended by following a Bitcoiner who is probably a Bitcoin maximalist and says something um, insane uh, that the person that's new to Bitcoin or crypto doesn't um, like know about. So yeah, Bitcoin Sherpa, everyone, go visit it while you're listening to this, unless you're driving a car. But <laughs> but um, yeah, Brad, what did you want to say about Bitcoin Sherpa? I, I, I'm like got too much going on. I've got yeah. way too many things in the fire, not just in Bitcoin, but in my life. Like I divested in some Bitcoin three years ago or four years ago, and I'm still like, I was like practicing delayed gratification, like, oh, I'm going to invest this in property and I'm going to try to become like, you know, own some property like Robert Kiyosaki or whatever and have some rental income coming in. But it's such a stress. It's such a mental headache. It takes up so much of your time. I like just holding Bitcoin. That's awesome. It's simple. It's simple. It's like you don't have to have anybody's involved in it. Um, but regardless, I've done all this stuff now and I have to deal with it. So Bitcoin Sherpa was something that I wanted to start because it's an idea I've had for like a while to have defined leaders in Bitcoin that aren't yet exposed or don't yet have the exposure they should and represent different demographics of people that are coming in because there's going to be another billion or two billion people coming into Bitcoin over the next few years. And not everybody's going to be like resonating with what Bitcoin maximalists that are like typically um right-leaning or freedom maximalists or whatever values have to say because a lot of the time it's like you're tweeting for yourself and a lot of bitcoiners that take the time to make a twitter account and go follow other bitcoiners it's kind of like a group sort of like tribal thing where they talk about is kind of like the same sort of thing like libertarian stuff or whatever and compounding that with you got to like in order to get engagement, you got to be a little bit even more controversial or like to the point or pissed off or whatever on Twitter. This, that stuff rises to the top, not just in Bitcoin, but in politics and everything. It's always the 2% most active, engaged people that are on Twitter. And they're usually the like the fringe of the, of the, of the people are the ones that are the most like followed because. It's that visceral response, like, like, retweet, you know? So most people don't have that mentality that are going to come into Bitcoin. Most people aren't libertarians. Most people are normal folks that are just like, hey, I want to learn about Bitcoin. And then they come into this and they see a tweet, say, if you wear a mask, a face diaper mask, you're a freedom cuck and you don't deserve rights. Like, that will turn somebody off. If you... If you get that uh, from like your first initial experience on Bitcoin Twitter, it's going to be like a turnoff experience. So I think there's so many people in Bitcoin. There's like a Bitcoiner that represents everybody. They're just not as well followed because of those reasons of like the way the algorithms promote like the most engaged. So Bitcoin Sherpa was a way to elevate leaders in Bitcoin who have diverse backgrounds and they come from diverse like races and like men and women and everything in between and like having different political backgrounds and and just philosophical ideas 
progressives, whatever. There's tons of Bitcoiners that are really smart and know a lot about monetary history and know how to speak the language that will help convert people into thinking about Bitcoin as a better money and as a more like bring people more towards freedom and away from socialism, away from um, communism and, and like away from these ideas, these fiat mentalities. Like there's a lot of progressives, Bitcoiners that are really welcoming and like, you know, they're not. They're not these scary Bitcoin maximalist trope sort of people that that most shitcoiners and stuff like to say about Bitcoiners. That's what Bitcoin Sherpa is. It is a way to like have a database of Bitcoiners and what type of like personality they are and what their politics are. And then you come on the site and you fill out a little paragraph question about like what podcast you'd listen to or what you know, you're looking for, are you looking for coding or you want to be an investor? Are you, you just looking for you want a job, you want a job. Yeah. So you fill out this little paragraph and it's meant to be like the starting page for every new Bitcoiner. And it has all the resources on there and it has all these leaders that you can follow that won't turn you off of Bitcoin. And the reason why I wanted to see that was that if I get, we all get messages constantly from like, Oh, like, well, how do I get started? Or what wallet should I use? Or you know, what, what should I listen to or whatever? I want to have a site where Bitcoin Sherpa, whatever, it could change the domain. It doesn't matter. I want someone to take this over because I'm too busy. But we got it to a point where you guys got up version one of it built already and it's out there and it's proof of concept is live. So we just need somebody to come in and kind of like take it over and f- start it actually has profiling. Views now too. Actually, does it? Yeah, it's got something like 100 and 200 a month. Nice. Yeah. So people are using it. We just got to like, fill out all the Bitcoiners that are Bitcoin only. That's the important thing. Like it's got to be Bitcoin only people because I want this to be something that Bitcoiners will trust to refer their friends and family and new coiners to like, just go to BitcoinSherpa.com, fill out the paragraph and it'll give you a list of everything you need. And then it'll like connect them to people. So if they like have progressive ideas or something like that, then they would be connected with progressive Bitcoiners who are Bitcoin only and they're not going to start selling them NFTs or something like that or, you know, get them down the rabbit hole of like some shitcoin. I want it to be like, that. that's the utility value of it. You fill out your paragraph, it connects you to other Bitcoiners who are, because there's Bitcoins for everybody and it's a diverse group of people that are in Bitcoin. And um, it just it just needs, I guess, more people to be filled out on the site. Like we need more Bitcoiners profiled to put their like link them to the personality test thing. So that's really, I think all it needs right now. We just, just need somebody to kind of like be passionate about it and come in and likes the idea and wants to see it become like one of those mainstay resources that all Bitcoiners are happy to use when they get somebody started in Bitcoin. And there's a second concept of it that we didn't get in there yet, but like there's an idea of like you can create like version two of it would be you can create your profile as a Bitcoiner. You can claim your profile and then you can be contacted by people from the site. If you want to do some consulting, you can get paid to answer the questions. Um, so that that would be like a down the road thing where it's an income source for Bitcoiners. They get they can get paid in Bitcoin to answer questions and help people and consult with people. And then separately, an affiliate program that would use this like conga line thing where if you refer people to BitcoinSherpa.com, 
it tracks your referrals and then puts you like in a conga line of basically a link rotator so that anytime that um, somebody goes to like one of the wallet websites or an exchange website or something like that without a refer, then it would automatically put the people that have credits in there. So the site wouldn't take any money. The Bitcoin Sherpa site, at least that was my concept at the beginning, was I, I wanted it to be altruistic. So it was like people knew I wasn't trying to make any money off of it. It was actually like giving a resource for Bitcoiners to make some extra money through giving them free affiliates, right? If they can send traffic to the site, their link will be set, will be put in the referrer ID from when someone clicks on Swan Bitcoin or Cash App or whatever, it'll use their URL. So you claim your site, your profile, you put in your affiliate links, and then BitcoinSherpa.com will put your link on the main page. If for every new visitor, like you'll get one, for every one visit you send, you get one click on your affiliate links. So that was a way that I figured this could be like not only a way to help Bitcoiners like improve the retention rate of new people learning about Bitcoin so that they don't just go to Twitter and search Bitcoin and then see like a tweet that turns them off from Bitcoin and then they go over to Ethereum where they think it's all rainbows and unicorns. Like there's rainbow unicorn Bitcoiners. <laughs> just follow them. <laughs> so that's Bitcoin Sherpa. I, I think, I think, you know, I don't know if you guys got something to say. Like, Where can people contact you about it if they wanted more information? Um, Twitter, probably. Brad Mills can on Twitter. And um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. If Just check out the website. And if you dig the idea, then yeah, we'll, we'll, we're looking for somebody to be the me of it that I'm too busy to be, to take it over and be like, you know, a passion to run it. Are your DMs open? Yeah. Well, there you yeah. go. Brad Mills can. We I think also... that's it. Yeah, that's I it. I thought it was Brad Mills can do it. That's my that's my Telegram name. Oh, okay. Brad Mills can do it. So they, I guess they could also contact me on Telegram. <laughs> okay, cool. But if you contact me on Telegram, I'm probably going to reply <laughs> back and say, send me one Bitcoin. I'll double it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if that's actually my... Put my 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 name on Telegram, so it might be a scammer that has that one. Just to Twitter, Brad Mills can on Twitter. Brad Mills can. There you go. Well, this is very exciting to hear all of your thoughts that we couldn't get into last time, and I've just I've heard you talk about them with other people, but it was really nice to have it all recorded in one episode. Good conversation. Good conversation. Yeah, we don't have all the answers. We just talk about the stuff. Yeah. And true. buy Bitcoin. <laughs> Bet on Bitcoin as a hedge. Max out your credit card. Yeah. <laughs> Scam the credit cards. Yeah, I feel like maybe that should be a disclaimer. <laughs> this is what I did when I was younger and was pissed off. There was no Bitcoin to buy at that point. I probably would have bought Bitcoin instead of doing that. I probably would have actually bought Bitcoin with it and then and then negotiated the debt down. Oh well. I think I bought like an Xbox or something. <laughs> All right. Well, if anyone is listening to this while we're still in Nova Scotia and Brad's still in Gabarus, then come visit you. Maybe have another Bitcoin meetup in Sydney. Yeah. That'd be cool. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, that was that. Thanks, everyone. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Listen. Thanks, you guys, for coming down. This was so fun to do an in-person podcast. It's been like a year and a half since I did one. Yeah. It's different, too, eh? The energies and like the emotion and passion about talking about what we love about yes. colliding and conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. All so right. true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Thanks for listening and um, talk to you next week. <laughs>